The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who surpasses LeBron James, Seth Rogen, and Paul Rudd as the next big thing. My co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, Once Upon a Time is still on hiatus, but we are going to discuss Castle, Modern Family, Supernatural, The Big Bang Theory, and Person of Interest. Also, as expected, we are going to wrap this episode up with our Airwaves Rundown section, unveiling our favorite commercials from the Super Bowl, and featuring our thoughts on Justified, New Girl, Arrow, Bones, The Return of Robin Sparkles on How I Met Your Mother, White Collar, Glee, and Andy joins me once again for the following, but there's still even more. But before we do all of those great things, we're going to go into everyone's favorite section, News with Nico. As is usual lately, I have a Star Wars rumor. A young Han Solo and Boba Fett spinoff movies. Entertainment Weekly reports that there are two potential spin-off movies in early stages of development at Lucasfilm. A young Han Solo saga focusing on the wisecracking smuggler's origin story and a bounty hunter adventure with Boba Fett at the center of a rogues gallery of galactic scum. The Han Solo story would take place in the time period between Revenge of the Sith and the first Star Wars known as A New Hope. So, although it's possible Harrison Ford could appear as a framing device, the movie would require a new actor for the lead, one presumably much younger than even the 35-year-old Harrison Ford when he appeared in this 1977 original. The Bubba Fett film would take place either between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back or between Empire and Jedi, where the bounty hunter was last seen plunging unceremoniously into a Sarlacc pit. Exactly who would play him isn't much of a complication because in the original trilogy, he never took off his helmet. And in the prequels, we learned that he was the son of the original Stormtrooper clone played by Tamara Morrison, who's still about the right age for the part if his services were required. And as EW points out, these prequel films would also allow for appearances by both Darth Vader and Jabba the Hutt. So that alleviates my fear of them bringing back Darth Vader in the original series. But in these spinoffs, that would be perfectly okay. Yeah. Entertainment Weekly sources also said that Timothy Zahn's novel Scoundrels, which focuses on Han's time between A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, would not be the basis for the proposed solo film, which is sort of a disappointment to me because I truly enjoyed all of the Timothy Zahn novels from the extended universe. Yeah. For more information, if you can believe there is more, go ahead and check out the articles on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Please do not have Shia LaBeouf play the young Han Solo. Oh. Please, I beg of you. That would be better than Robert Pattinson. Oh. Remember I reported a couple months ago oh. that he be a no. part So if he is it, no. I may, I'm, it may be the first oh. time I don't see a Star Wars movie. Oh. He'd be a great yeah. villain, but I don't now, want to be in Han Solo. 
episode seven is still on the table as well, right? Oh, so episode seven is a, is a absolute. It's still going. Absolute, okay. It's just rumored. Rumored on top of that. Okay. On top of that, yes. So they're really going nuts with Star Wars movies. Well, they have said that there are going to be standalones. These are just the first to be rumored, and that they're wow. already in production, or not in not in production, but in uh, pre-production. So they're kind of doing what they're they're trying to do with Marvel with Star Wars. Yeah. Where they want to do individual standalone movies. Interesting. Yep. Wow, this is a bigger monstrosity than I thought it would be. Now I have a prediction. How I Met Your Mother is about to become How I Met Your Father. What? Now that we know that How I Met Your Mother will officially return for a ninth and final season, many fans have been trying to figure out exactly how the show will handle its home stretch. Will we meet the mother this spring in the season 8 finale? Will the show make us wait until the very end of season 9? Will the writers just pad out a storyline it already had prepared for season 8? Naturally, we don't have many answers at this point, but this week, TV Guide ran a story based on a recent interview with How I Met Your Mother's co-creator, Craig Thomas. The article declared that next season will, quote, look and feel much different from past seasons, with Thomas revealing that there's, quote, going to be a new way to tell the story, and that fans are never going to mistake a season nine episode from one of the previous eight seasons. A new way to tell the story could mean just about anything, but here's what TV.com's writer Bill Cookman's theory was. How I Met Your Mother is going to go Nikki and Paolo on season 9. Now let me explain what that means. During the third season of Lost, the show introduced the characters Nikki and Paolo and used flashbacks to insert them into key moments of the show's first two seasons. They were always on the outside of the main group, but somehow seemed to be around whenever cool things were happening. Fans hated Nikki and Paolo, and Lost eventually buried them alive, literally. However, if we're going to get a new season of How I Met Your Mother that looks and feels different from any other season, what better way to accomplish that than by spending large amounts of time with Ted's future wife? The series can show her side of many of the stories we've heard Ted tell over the years. Her experience at the bar on St. Patrick's Day when she forgot her yellow umbrella, the time Ted was in her apartment while she was in the shower. I'm sure How I Met Your Mother could even create new close calls where the mother almost met Ted over the years. And as a bonus, allowing a few new actors to carry some of the final season's storylines would free up the principal cast to work on other projects which would make sense considering that the growing careers of stars like Jason Siegel are what almost kept season nine from happening in the first place. This is merely a theory, so don't feel like I just spoiled yeah. season nine for you. But it was sufficiently WTF for me to add it to this week's News with Nico. It's a risky move. Very risky. Very, I mean, unbelievably risky. Because a lot of people see the final season as their last time to spend time with the characters they love. Yes. So to not have that as big of a fan following as this show has, I don't know. It's a huge risk. I don't think this is actually what they're going to do. I think they we might get a few episodes, one or two episodes that maybe are shot from someone yeah. else's point of view, which would actually be pretty cool. But to Not go every week. season would be disastrous. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is we might see more of the future hmm, that's, next season as well. That's interesting. I like that. Redbox Instant launching as Xbox 360 exclusive. Last year, news arrived of Verizon's plan to team up with DVD rental kiosk company Redbox to offer instant streaming. While the service still remains in beta, Microsoft's Larry Herb, 
has announced Xbox 360 is the exclusive console provider for Redbox Instant's imminent launch. Redbox and Verizon are hoping to compete with similar services, including Netflix and Amazon Instant, by providing a means to easily grab physical copies of new releases. After pushing subscribers towards streaming-only plans with readjustments in pricing plans, the Instant Streaming Library on Netflix is seriously lacking in current titles. Redbox Instant will offer subscription plans of $8 a month for DVD or $9 dollars a month for blu-ray which allow you to grab four one-night rentals from Redbox kiosks in addition to the streaming library so you can actually stream their entire library uh, that's on the streaming library and then four times a month go to the box and get a, a dvd all for eight bucks that's pretty good Redbox representatives have issued clarification to IGN stating that the service will be available on other gaming platforms in the future but will be exclusive to Xbox 360 at the time of its initial launch, which makes a lot more sense to me since it would be a stupid business model to be exclusive to a single platform. Is their library going to be as expansive though as Netflix and Hulu? It, there's no real way to answer that until we actually get to see right. what it is. But Netflix's streaming is quite lacking on the new stuff. So if it is right. similar and they offer this brand new release DVDs, then it's definitely going to be a better service. But if it's, it might be a payoff, you know, the, the better libraries on Netflix, but the new releases is on Redbox. So you're going to have to pick and choose what makes more sense to your viewing style. Finally, ABC orders an extra episode of Castle. Good news for Castle fans. ABC has confirmed the episode order for season 5 has been bumped up from 23 to 24. This isn't the first time this season ABC yeah, additional episode of Castle. Back in October, ABC expanded the original 22 to 23, and now it's being expanded to 24. Well, that's certainly a good sign for this show. Well, they kind of did that last year in response to them doing another two-part episode. So maybe that's what's happening here. Or maybe we're going to get two two-part episodes this year of Castle. I think it's going to just be an additional one at the end. Okay. Because uh, we already have the, the sweeps two-parter coming up at the end of this month. Right. So I think it's just going to be an add-on to the one additional before the finale. Well, we've got some big stories for Castle to tell, because we learned from this coming episode we're going to talk about in just a minute. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yes, that is the news with Nico. And now we're going to move on to something I'm really excited about, a really solid episode of Castle that I think is going to lead to a great discussion between Nico and I. So let's talk now about the Castle episode, Recoil. Complications ensue when Castle and Beckett finally try to take Senator Bracken down after finding evidence connecting him to a young woman's murder. After three mundane episodes where the only highlight was a cliffhanger about a certain character's father, the castle as we know it finally returned with an episode that was way more worthy of the term mid-season premiere compared to the Esposito show that was airing in January. Yes, we love Esposito, but it was time for the show to give us one of their classic character-driven mysteries, filled with a variety of twists and turns to get us talking on this podcast. Now, when it comes to twists, this episode certainly had a doozy for Castle fans everywhere, because what originally started out as Beckett's big opportunity to bring down Senator Brackett, the man responsible for her mother's death, became a race-against-time mystery to save the senator's life from an assassination attempt. So, Nico, we will get into the storytelling that went into this crazy twist and how it affected the development of Beckett's character in just a bit. But first, I've got to ask, did you see this coming when starting to watch this episode? No, Dan. 
I did not see it coming. I knew she was not going to be able to go at the center head on because he'd be too smart to see and see that coming. But I did not anticipate that the center was going to be 100% innocent of this murder and would actually be the victim. That was a brilliant turn of events that really strengthened this sinister character and I think humanized him, which I think will make him a more complex, complete villain that will be very entertaining to see develop and ultimately to be brought to justice. There are a lot of shows that normally do this story where the main character has to protect the big bad in order to stop another threat. But I think Castle is one of the shows that did it best here in this episode, simply based on Stonacotic's performance. The scenes she had with Slender Bracken, otherwise known as actor Jack Coleman, were unbelievable. Because despite all the mind games he tried to play, Beckett stuck to her guns and remained right up in the guy's face, while still remaining completely professional. Although that doesn't mean she was Superwoman. Because the writers also did a nice job of keeping Beckett's character humanized. With it being shown that privately, Beckett was really struggling with the concept of protecting Bracken. I liked how it led back to her psychiatrist from season four. So far from what we've seen this season, it's kind of been close to paradise for Beckett, with finally having a romance between her and Castle. But seeing her seek out advice shows that this conflict with her mother's death isn't over yet. And there's more she needs to emotionally overcome, which is perfect because it doesn't run the risk of Castle becoming the shadow of a once great show whose characters have run out of conflict, like with Bones. Don't get me wrong, Castle kind of scared us the past few weeks, but I hope the writers can look at what's been the show's first rough patch compared to this episode and see that the strength of their series comes from their understanding of how to challenge characters. Because as long as they keep doing that, good episodes like this one, they have me as a fan of the show until the end. So Nico, what did you think about Sonic Haddock's performance? Beckett struggles with protecting Senator Bracken. And do you think that this conflict is an indicator that the writers of Castle's intents for the future is to continue finding ways to challenge their characters, like what was presented here? Stonacotic's portrayal of the struggle of Beckett saving Senator Bracken was done very well. Though I was concerned in the middle that Beckett was being a little flip-floppy about whether she was going to let the man go or do everything in her power to catch him. I was happy to see in the end that this was an intentional discrepancy on the part of the writer used as a plot device rather than a misunderstanding of the character. Ultimately, this performance played extremely well and the true Kate Beckett came through in the end. So yeah, Dan, I am sure that the the writers and everybody on the staff knows that maybe things were a little rough in the middle there. And this is an indication of they had to get through that to get some story plots and and devices in place for this episode to really work. And so it got a little rough there, but during the rough patch, we got certain things to happen that needed to be in place for this performance to be where it was. And so I think we're back on track now. Now, in terms of getting things in place, are you referring to like the cliffhanger with Castle's ex-wife and that kind of stuff? Or That one still kind of is out there. <laughs> right. But no, I think like just them to have a couple issues and not everything be perfect. So in that sense, yes, they needed to have that. Well, whatever that was. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, they've had a couple cutesy couple issues in the last couple episodes. We've sort of seen a reliance on telling stories on Esposito and not really Ryan yet. I'm hoping that we'll get more one episode that emphasizes Ryan like it should have been one episode that emphasized Esposito instead of two. But essentially those kinds of things were so that we would kind of maybe forget about the senator so that when he came back, it was like, 
boom, oh. it hit us, you know? Yeah, so like I think certain things were being set up and I don't have any, I can't say what one thing between Castle and Beckett, but like just them getting comfortable and then also having issues that they got through so that if yeah. a big issue like this came up, they that Castle could be there properly to support her without, you know, telling her what to do or something like that. And I think that that showed, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, I think most definitely. And I think some of this stuff with Esposito's personality that we experienced when the past two episodes kind of came out of this episode, you know, and especially that one scene where he kind of got up in the senator's face. And then went to go talk to him at his house. He still got this issue that he had at the beginning, I mean, at the end of last season, the beginning of this season, where he wants to take this guy out because he went after his friends and tried to kill his friends. Right. And he still got that hot-headedness towards him. And that might be an issue or something that the senator may try to use against him in the future. Because this episode, he got close to Beckett's team. He got to see some of the inner workings now. Could he may use some of those things on them? That's true. And going along with the idea of Castle challenging its characters, the writers also challenged the audience during this episode. Because there were moments where Beckett felt she did something wrong, could not protecting Beckett. But my family and even Castle within the episode were able to make arguments about how she was kind of right. For instance, the scene where Beckett fired the two shots at the supposed assassin got missed. She thought she subconsciously missed the guy because she wanted Bracken to die. But I can also see it as Beckett saw herself in the assassin and didn't want to kill him. Obviously, knowing Nico and I, we could debate about who's wrong or right about this question all day. But the point I'm getting at is what made this episode so engaging was not the mystery or the return of Bracken. It was the struggle Beckett went through of having to decide if she should protect the guy or not. And how the writers used situations like Beckett missing the shot she fired at the assassin make us personally debate what choice we would make if we were in her shoes. So, Nico, am I onto something with this perception? Yeah, Dan, but I have to clarify sort of my understanding of that scene. Okay. That's okay. The scene where she shot those two shots into the wall. Yeah. She clearly shot after letting him go. And I think it was a conscious decision rather than unconscious okay. or subconscious decision. Otherwise, I'm right there with you that the reason this episode was so appealing was not the mystery, which was good. It was okay. Yeah. But nothing award-winning by any means, nor merely the return of Senator Bracken, which again was great, but rather I think it was the struggles Beckett went through in deciding if she could protect yeah. the man who killed her mother and then tried to kill her as well, or if she would allow this assassin to, to succeed. And that's what really captivated me in this episode. The yeah. reason this was so successful was because we, as the viewer, thought we knew that Beckett would do the right thing. But we also were debating what we would do in her place. So that really yeah. got us thinking. And I think that was what was really great about this episode. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We It kept us thinking. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the best way to say that what it went at was that, I mean, that whole process. And I mean, with that kind of, idea of the episode making us think i mean we've implied several times already that this was an excellent episode of castle but it did have one minor little flaw and it might not even be a flaw that my dad picked up on during the scene where beckett was in the interrogation room trying to connect with who they originally thought was the assassin basically during the scene beckett reveals all the things that bracken has done to her with captain gates watching through the reflective glass what bothered my dad about the scene was Gates asking Castle what Beckett was talking about, and then her dropping the subject. Now, my dad is like us. He doesn't want to see any more Captain Gates than we need to, but he thought she was smart enough to acquire more. But my response to him was, with Gates being a former internal affairs officer, I think she would keep her suspicions to herself until she knew more. 
meaning that it's possible, get an episode down the road, she will confront Beckett about what Brackett has done to her. Then Gates will cite this scene because the moment that began her suspicions. So, Nico, what's your thoughts on the matter? Dan, I agree with your assessment. She will dig into her suspicions off camera or maybe even on camera over the next few episodes or more. And when it is time for the return of Senator Bracken, then I think Gates will confront Beckett about what she said in the interrogation room here in this episode. We will initially think that Gates is going to come down hard on Beckett and it will seem that way in in the way she initially talks to her. But I suspect that she will have uncovered something small that will help start building a case against Bracken. I'm predicting that Gates will actually come down on Beckett's side because as of yet, Beckett hasn't really done anything that Gates knows of that is illegal and or an internal affairs affair. I think she will realize on her own how Bracken is connected to Beckett or you know something that there's a connection there and we'll keep picking away at it and maybe find something and we'll actually try to help next time and i think this will turn her from being this horrible character to maybe that she'll finally become that captain montgomery replacement she was brought in to be and i think it's going to actually be an opportunity for her character to make a huge improvement well, she's very much into protecting her people right. and keeping her people safe. So I think how she's going to side with them is based on that standpoint, that that character driving character trait. I guess that's the best word. For yeah, it. okay. Yeah, that character trait she has to do that. Yeah, I think because Beckett and the guys have really covered their tracks for any of the illegal stuff that they did, like hiding or withholding evidence or anything like that, I don't think that that's going to be ever come out. I think right. that the only thing she's going to have an issue with is that they didn't bring it to her. And Beckett will be able to say, we didn't know who we could trust. We knew the four of us would, were good and we were waiting until we had something solid to bring to you. And we didn't want to bring you in and bring this heat down on you until we were certain we had something. And now that we have something, we want you in and we want you part of this. And that will make that change in this character that i've been talking about well so i think we kind of already crossed that trust bridge with gates to begin with yeah early with what this season. In the finale. yeah yeah so i think that'll be in there too okay yeah ultimately in the end because nico mentioned the writers had beckett make the decision that fit within the constraints of her character to save the senator's life and what was intriguing about this because it showed that something good came out of the trauma beckett suffered in response to her mother's murder Coming before this episode, the murder of Kate's mom, for the most part, has been portrayed having a negative effect on her character, building the emotional wall that Castle eventually knocked down and fueling the thirst for revenge that almost got her killed. But here, we saw the positive effects of such a tragedy, as it instilled with her a moral code to provide murder victims' loved ones with the closure she never received from the detectives to investigate her mother's death. Because that right there was something that the writers conveyed beautifully through the murder of the innocent intern, being what convinced Beckett to stop Bracken's would-be assassin, as she simply couldn't stand the idea of leaving the poor intern's sister in such anguish just for revenge. Although, with that being said, I did see the episode going in the direction of the intern's murder, the assassin, and the bomb being a setup created by the senator as a means of getting Beckett to stop him from making his speech so he could get her out of the way professionally, while causing the added friction of Castle somewhat doubting Beckett's state of mind. Again, I'm kind of glad the episode didn't go this way, because there turned out to be an actual guy trying to kill Senator Bracken, because I think it would have opened up a whole other can of worms full of questions that the writers don't really need to take the time right now to answer. 
In addition, the show has kind of already covered the doubt thing with Beckett and Castle in this season's triple killer episode. So, Nico, what do you think about Beckett's decision to ultimately save the senator's life? Did you see my idea as a possibility for an alternate ending? Or did you disregard it as well for just creating way too many questions? Yeah, Dan, I did see your proposed idea as well and was equally relieved that they did not go that way. It would have made sense in maybe season three or maybe or maybe even more so in season four after Beckett had been shot and people were not 100% sure of her recovery. But here it would have been an unnecessary headache for the writers, the characters and us, the viewers. So I'm glad they didn't fall down that rabbit hole and set this show way back. That seems more like a Bones move than a Castle one. Beckett would never have forgiven herself if she had not done everything in her power to stop a murderer and bring him to justice. Even if she got the momentary satisfaction of revenge of seeing the man responsible for her mother's death killed in the process, it would have destroyed her to know she compromised herself in that way and would have sent the entire series on a very dark path. Yeah. It would also have upset many Beckett fans because it would have felt so out of character for her. So once again, great decision not to go that route. Kind of, I, I thought of it. I'm kind of ashamed of myself that I actually thought of that. And at first reaction, I was like, oh, that, that would be kind of crazy. Because I'm like, oh, no, that would be bad. It would be bad, bad for the show. Do you see what Bones has done to us? It's made us paranoid. Ugh. All right. Well, in wrapping up the discussion with some predictions, I thought Bracken being all shady with Beckett about giving her the name of the man that wanted him killed was setting up another big bad above Bracken that either was going to be Castle's dad or connected to him somehow. But it turned out the mastermind behind the assassination attempt was just a lower level member of Bracken's organization, leaving me to my fears. And again, it's not a really bad fear right now, but just from the track record of other shows, I am a little nervous that this show doesn't know where to go in season six because there's so many shows that we've loved that's had a season six slump could fall off the rails so i'm just hoping castle doesn't follow that especially if this episode being so great However, a nugget of foreshadowing was given about the way this season is going to end because castle told bracken that he would have just stood and watched him get blown up by the car bomb so is this foreshadowing that he's going to end up killing bracken also, I'm curious why Castle would say this after he spent so much time convincing Beckett she would have so much to lose if she threw her life away to bringing her mother's killer to justice, or essentially killing him. I mean, if anyone has a lot to lose, it's Castle, just based upon the relationships he's had with his mother and Alexis. But maybe it's an indicator Brackett has got it to him through his feelings for Beckett, or he's just that determined to protect his loved ones. So, Nico, what's your thoughts on this foreshadowing? Could you have any of the other predictions for the continuations of this Senator Bracken story arc? Dan, quick correction before I answer. The guy that ended up being behind Bracken's assassination attempt was not a lower level guy in Bracken's organization. Yes, the assassin was, but the guy behind it was what they call a kingmaker. And he was the guy who spent millions and sometimes billions of dollars of special interest groups money to get the right people elected to key political offices so that they can then affect the way laws are made and things so okay. that the special interests get what they want. This guy was probably the guy who got Bracken elected to the U.S. Senate in the first place. But Bracken said that he had refused to play ball with this special interest guy, and that was why he had tried to have him killed. I assume that Bracken's new speech went counter to the interests of this money behind the special interest super PAC, and okay. that was that this kingmaker ran, and that they had asked him not to make the speech, but Bracken was adamant about it. Thus, they tried to kill him, and under 
underestimated Bracken's understanding of the game and his reach as he was able to uncover and expose or maybe frame the Kingmaker. I say maybe frame because of what Beckett said at the end of the episode about how Bracken is now a folk hero who took down a corrupt super PAC leader that tried to kill him. Even Castle had to agree it made for a better story. Now, I could see Castle killing Bracken, but I uh, I think it'll be in a clear self-defense situation that won't get Castle jammed up or end up on trial or anything like that. At least that's my hope. Castle- so it, it'll be like a triple killer situation, like when he shot him. Yeah. Okay. Castle mentioned that he would have let Bracken die in the car bomb, but that is a clear distinction from actually killing him. Also, Castle knows Beckett and he was so adamant about Beckett doing the right thing because he knew that it would eat her up for the rest of her life if she did not do what was right. He might be able to live with allowing someone to die, but Beckett would blame herself for losing sight of who she is and what she believes in, and that's why Castle would have let Bracken die, but ultimately Beckett could not. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's justifiable, and it also proves how they make each other better. Exactly. My fear right now is that what they're going to do, the finale cliffhanger is Castle's going to kill Bracken and they're going to do the whole on trial thing or whatever. And his dad with the CIA or whatever his position is swoops in and saves the day. Yeah, I really don't want to see that. And I don't want to see that either. That That's where I'm a little leery. I'll feel better once they bring him in and they explain it all. But right now I see this like just getting blown out of proportion. I think they're trying to do a story to like almost outdo themselves with the Bracken story they have right now, which they claim they're going to wrap up at the end of season five. Yeah, I really don't want to see that. I don't. I, I don't want to see that. Yeah. I, want, I don't want that much of a change. And we've already seen the castle being accused of murder. That was the triple killer thing. That's not right. what's going to happen here. Or it shouldn't happen here. We've already explored that path. I don't want to see it again. Or even more in depth, I don't want to see it. I think leave it alone and focus on the mystery of the father or connecting the father or maybe the father kills and they have to try and prove something or something. You know, just don't put Castle in jeopardy because that's so cliche. Right, exactly. That's kind of what they did with the mentalist, didn't they? Didn't he kill somebody or something? Yeah, but he was never really really in, in jeopardy. They resolved it in two episodes. Okay. It was the finale. He killed who he thought was Red John. And then the first episode back, spoilers, of course, (laughs) but this was two, two seasons ago. So I don't feel too bad. He comes back and he's on, he's being held and he has a trial either in that first episode or in the second episode. And he ends up getting himself off because he convinced the jury that it was, it was self-defense. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I mean, I think that pretty much wraps everything up. I think so. Okay, good deal. All right, well, let's move on to talking about Modern Family with a quite humorous episode, especially if you're a fan of the theater, entitled A Slight at the Opera. Cameron's school production of Phantom of the Opera is in jeopardy when his star gets sick, but Manny has a plan to come to the rescue. Meanwhile, Phil's golf lesson with Jay turns into a competition with Mitchell and Pepper. Alex tags along on Gloria's errand, which includes a visit to a psychic, and Claire babysits Lily and Joe. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family took place in the opening when Luke began practicing his golf swing by telling Lily to open her mouth and then hearing a crashing sound. Also, props to Luke got overcoming the fumes from the set he was painting to become the lead in Camp's production of Phantom of the Opera. And I'm curious if that was his real singing voice. 
So with the knowledge that I like big putts, and I cannot lie, I'm going to pass things out to you, Nico, with your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family would have to be the whole fathers and sons theme from this week's episode. This was kicked off with Mitchell and Pepper crashing Phil and Jay's golf lesson. I loved how both Mitchell and Phil needed Jay to be an ass to play well, but that Jay was trying so hard to be a nice guy. Then the cats in the cradle scene played so well into Mm -hmm. Phil rushing to the play to be with Luke and Phil's dad, played by the great Fred Willard, just showed up. (laughs) (laughs) This was later finished off with Fred Willard cheering on Phil as he closed the deal on the trampoline, which was a great callback to the if business was a trampoline sport comment in the open. Yes. Some great moments in this episode, some funny and some dramatic, which is where this show seems to have the most success of late. And I'm really liking it now that I've switched that thought process in my brain. And I'm really enjoying the the drama part and the comedy a lot more. And I also thought Nathan Lane was a lot of fun popping up as well. Nathan Lane is always a blast. Yeah, on top of Fred Willard, so a lot of great stuff in this. Indeed. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on to a surprisingly good episode of Supernatural that I thought was going to be goofy, but actually left me presently surprised. Get titled, Everybody Hates Hitler. The brothers look into the death of Rabbi Bass, who spontaneously combusted. Things get complicated when they find out that the rabbi was researching Nazi necromancers. A golem that belongs to the rabbi's grandson, Aaron, attacks them. However, since Aaron doesn't know how to control him, everyone is in danger. This week's episode of Supernatural got one of the most misleading trailers I've ever seen, because it looked like we were going to get a goofy, grindhouse and glorious bastard story, where the Winchesters somehow end up in World War II Germany to hunt down a golem that was really going to have no importance in the grand scheme of things. However, I couldn't have been more wrong, because what writer Ben Elon did deliver was an interesting continuity about rabbi hunters back during World War II that introduced a new ally, an enemy to the Winchesters, while setting up the rest of the entire series in a very well-executed fashion. So, Nico, did you think this was going to be a fun filler episode? Or what were your initial thoughts going into it? Well, Dan, you know I rarely watch the promos or scenes from next week anymore for this reason, so that I am not disappointed or misled going into an episode, which can have a very negative effect on enjoying an episode. Since I didn't see last week's preview slash trailers, I got exactly what I expected from this episode, a continuation of last week's Men of Letters episode and theme, so... I really got exactly what I was expecting. Okay, yeah, and with that, what you were expecting, I would have to say that the biggest highlight of this episode would have to be displaying the genius behind introducing the Men of Letters concept. Through having the brothers set up shop, get their library, or bat cave as Steve called it. First off, having a location like this one completely alleviates my fears about the rest of the season, or even the entire series running out of steam, because it gives the boys directions, like the journal did in earlier seasons. With them now having allies to fight, could new cases to solve with supernatural creatures spanning throughout history. Although what I was most satisfied with was how the library supported our aspirations for a satisfied end to the series, with Sam being able to have his normal life with Amelia by working as a man of letters, while Dean goes out on the road to trade and recruit new hunters. I don't know if I can speak for you other Supernatural fans out there, but I was grinning ear to ear when the ending we want to see of this series was all but confirmed when Sam told Dean he thought this was the break they were looking for. Because the episode ended with Dean being proud that Sam found his place as a man of letters. Nico, do you agree with me on the notion that the introduction of the library has given Supernatural's writers a whole new wealth of stories to create, get choose from, kind of a well that was almost running dry at the beginning of the season? Yeah, absolutely. 
While I suggested last week that they were only going to have a short time in the library once they found it, and that ended up being wrong, I was very happy to be wrong, as I loved the idea of this Batcave slash home base slash HQ where the brothers can return from after cases. It can be their new Bobby's house and base of operations. I really liked where this story is going, and I'm happy that it was Sam that seemed to be interested in continuing the Men of Letters tradition, and that Dean was very supportive of Sam doing it. Yes, and also Dean seemed to enjoy the swords that they had in the place. Got yeah. a dead guy's bathrobe. Yeah. But, Nico, I know you said that your your theory from last week might have been wrong, but I kind of have this idea of where, how it could somewhat be right, is that I think that this library is only going to last until the end of the season. Because I think the finale, if this show gets another season, which I think it will, will deal with an army of demons attacking and destroying the building to get to the angel tablet that's probably stored there. Then in the next season, we're going to see Sam and Dean establish a new command center for hunters. Kind of like what Smallville did with the Watchtower in between seasons 8 and 9. Yeah, Dan, I had the exact same theory and actually wrote it down in my notes for the previous section before I saw you were going to mention it. And my exact thoughts were this, quote, Now, I think they could still potentially lose this location, but they will continue to have a home base like this from now on that they will keep it stocked with the knowledge they've acquired over the years, maybe moving it from year to year to keep it safe. So essentially, we are on the exact same page and thinking along the same same lines. And I, I really like that, that this could be potentially a new idea for them, this maybe roving home base that they're going to have and they'll keep it for a while but have to move it so that it doesn't get destroyed like this original one might you know and the thing about this is i just can't believe they haven't come up with these ideas years ago you know they're that good well they had they had bobby's house until last season so really there was no reason to have this going forward because they could always go back to Bobby's as their right. their home base. So once Bobby was gone and out of the picture and his house was essentially, you know, destroyed, this idea became a real reality that they could establish the next generation's home base. Well, and this has so much more backstory, though, to it. Because I feel like season five kind of exhausted all the surprises we could get out of Bobby's junkyard at that place. And so this is like the new, you know, next chapter location. Sure. And I, and I like that. And I think it's something we're excited about, which is something we didn't have a lot of last season, or the season before. So that's, that's where I'm like is that we're both kind of giddy about this idea. We haven't been that way in a while. Well, I mean, since this season started, I guess. Because there's been a lot of things this season we really like. Right. And as for the plot line of this particular episode involving necromancer Nazis, because I've got to say right now, I hate necromancer Nazis. <laughs> But I was proud to be an American watching this episode when I saw Sam and Dean cap one in the head and the golem completely obliterate another swastika-wearing pain in the butt who had a thing for blow darts. Glad that guy was taken down because he kind of ticked me off. Something about the glasses, I think. Now, in watching that incredibly misleading trailer, I thought the golem was going to be the silly part of this episode. But he ended up being something I really enjoyed, as it was different to see the Winchesters have a supernatural equivalent of the Hulk on their side. In addition, I was very interested in the John Connor Terminator relationship between the Gollum and the grandson who inherited him, to the point that I hope we see them as regular allies to the Winchesters, like Cass, Kevin, or Garth, because I'd like to see how their character dynamic develops. So, Nico, what did you think of the Gollum character and his relationship with the rabbi's son, Aaron? Really, Dan, couldn't have said it better. 
I too hope that we see them again and continue to see them grow as characters as I think the grandson will become very successful now that he has a purpose in life and will seek to continue his grandfather's work. He may even return to his faith and become a true rabbi. I love your analogy of the grandson and Gollum relationship to the John Connor and the Terminator relationship and completely agree. Much like in T2, I liked how the grandson wanted nothing to do with the Gollum until the Nazi necromancer nearly killed them all and now... Much like the Terminator, the Gollum will be the grandson's faithful protector and companion. Yeah. It's going to be good. Yeah, and Betty Lund is a big fan of Terminator, so I see where this came from. Yeah. Very smart. Very good. And again, he's one of the best writers of the show. Got it really showed here with that concept. And moving on to the Necromancer Nazi I mentioned earlier, it was revealed that they are part of a secret society called the Council of Thule. And I've got to say, I was surprisingly glad they ended this episode with the Winchester's conflict with these guys being left open. Some of you listeners out there might think I'd be crazy for praising Supernatural for bringing in a whole new network of bad guys for the Winchesters to take on this late in the series, but I foresee the council being led by Crowley, as it was revealed in his first appearance when Sam and Dean broke into his house that he was a supporter of the Nazis. I could be wrong about this one, but I'm just throwing it out there. Nico, you think this is a likely possibility? It's certainly a possibility, but I don't think Crowley's behind the Thule organization. Rather, maybe they will become allies at some point. Okay. And that will tie the two storylines together. But I don't believe that Crowley as a demon is behind the Thule organization because I think this one is purely a human spellcaster threat rather than a demon bat organization. But you could see where he would support them, though. Oh, yeah. I definitely yeah. think they're, they're allies against the Winchesters, especially now that the Thule are going to go up against the Winchesters. Crowley may approach them and say, we have a common enemy, maybe we can work together. Yeah, which will be interesting to see, and I think that ties things up easily if they have to wrap things up at the end of the season. Yeah. Or next, instead of it being a whole loose canon ending that they have to resolve kind of thing. Agreed. And with that, I mean, that's all I've really got for Supernatural, because this episode had great character development, but mainly laid down the foundations for the course of the series from here on out, leaving us in a place where we could really only speculate. But with those speculations, I think it's safe to say there is a bright, satisfied ending to this show ahead, probably at the end of next year. So, Nico, did you have any final thoughts on this episode or any predictions you might have for the future? Yeah, Dan. Unfortunately, I think we need to brace for impact soon. The brothers looked entirely too comfortable and, dare I say, happy at the end of this episode. If they are indeed happy, then history dictates that something horrible has to happen. I hope this is not the case, and I hope they don't lose the Men of Letters Batcave until maybe the end of this year. And before they lose it, they're able to copy or protect some of the information in it. But I also have a nagging feeling that something bad has to happen because things seem to be going too well for the Winchesters, and that just can't happen. <laughs> right. I think something needs to happen because there's still some things they need to overcome. Yeah. Like, Sam needs to have that love story resolved. That needs to come at them. And the other thing that's out there is what's going on with Benny, the him coming out there. I yeah. see that's where your bad thing could come from. Yeah, absolutely. I think Benny could go off the wagon and it's going to cause an issue between Sam and Dean. And maybe it won't be as bad as some of the disastrous turns or things that have had bad things have had to have happened to the Winchesters to keep the story going. Maybe it doesn't have to be that bad, but something bad needs to happen or is going to happen because that's the way this show sort of works sometimes. And so 
I'm just, things are going too well for the Winchesters right now. Something bad is coming. Would it be enough if Amelia's husband got killed? We had talked about that earlier, that that's definitely a distinct possibility, and it needs to be something supernatural. And I think a good conflict, character conflict, would be it's something that Sam and Dean did that caused it. So that she is angry with Sam when he shows up. Is it possible that somehow it could be set up that could happen by Benny falling off the wagon? That's definitely a possibility. I hadn't thought about that. But I I, I almost want her to blame Sam and then realize it wasn't Sam's fault. Well, they all could be blaming each other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the thing. So, are you ready to move on to community now? I am. Okay, all right. Let's talk about community. It's been a long wait for this show. I'm most definitely glad it's back. I know you are too, Nico. I know this is one that you enjoy and get excited about during the week. So, we're going to talk about the community episode. Get titled History 101. The gang begin their fourth year of college in a season four premiere. Jeff focuses on the last few credits he needs to graduate. Dean Pelton arranges a physical challenge to award spots in a history class. And Britta helps Abed cope with his anxiety about the group parting ways after graduation. With Community having new writers, I was a little worried that the show was going to lose its neck for a high-concept, outside-the-box television. But they were able to maintain it nicely with quite a few laugh-out-loud moments, including Fred Willard playing Pierce in the sitcom that accessed the happy place inside Abed's mind, Britta and Troy getting in a fight in the wishing well, and Jeff having to dance with the Dean to win his own version called The Hunger Games, which included quite a few jokes about little red balls. However, my favorite comedic moment, simply because it took me back to my childhood, would have to be the cut to the happy place within Abbott's happy place, which was a knockoff of Muppet Babies called Greendale Babies. At the same time, I've got to give this season premiere credit for setting up content to entice us into tuning in every week, such as some great character conflicts revolving around the study group being seniors, got an overarching story that would normally exist outside the wheelhouse of a sitcom about Chang resurfacing to take his revenge on Greendale for being overthrown as its ruler at the end of last season. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's community? My favorite comedic moment from this week's community was Abed's happy place. Essentially, it was Abed's multi-camera comedy, Community Fantasyland. It was an instant nod to the upheaval behind the scenes with the departure of Dan Harmon and the Chevy Chase debacle, a recognition of how Community might be if NBC had its way completely with the show. It was also a really funny joke and something the old Community would have done as well, but it never really made it to that next level Harmon was always living on, beyond maybe the incepting Community Babies, which you mentioned, which felt like it was the closest to what I would have expected from the old community. In Harmon's community, Abed might have gotten stuck in the nightmare scenario with the real world affecting Abed's fantasy world and vice versa, and the whole thing would play out like some sly spoof of maybe either Die Hard mixed with Inception or, you know, something of that nature. Yeah. It would have been some really mind-blowing craziness and we talk about it for weeks this week it felt more like a sketch within the show that had good intentions but never really paid off fully it was good but it just wasn't on that next level i don't think but still this return of community was a lot better than it could have been with this huge layoff and all the challenges and drama behind the scenes so ultimately i was very happy with the return of community 
And the other thing you got to remember, this was their first go at the rodeo. Yeah. So I think it's going to progress and get better as they more get used to things. Also, you know, NBC might be making them play it safe or they're playing it safe so they want to keep their jobs. Well, to be honest, the entire season is shot in the can and done. So there is no changing. So (laughs) whatever they came up with in those, you know, is done. Yeah, I guess so. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's all but all I think there's hope there. for improvement. Yeah, I think uh, as with anything, the more you do it, the better it gets. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> Sometimes so. bone bones, there's a point in television where you reach an apex and then you're on the decline, much right. like we always complain about bones and we'll do again this week. But <laughs> you know, this show I don't think is there. there. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And and the actors are fun to watch. Oh, yeah. We enjoy them and want to tune into them every week as well. So that's part of it, too. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about the Big Bang Theory episode. That's a lot of fun, a lot of crazy, and kind of attempted doing a change-up on living arrangements, but it didn't happen, thankfully. At least I think so. So let's talk about the episode, the spoiler alert segmentation. All started with the Big Bang with Leonard mad at Sheldon, he moves in with Penny. Amy notes that she would be the perfect roommate for Sheldon since she knows him so well and he wouldn't have to break in someone else. Sheldon and Penny are not happy with these arrangements. Raj is trapped in Wallowitz's house with Howard's lonely mother. The plotline revolving around Leonard wanting to move in with Penny and Amy wanting to move in with Sheldon was great sitcom material that did a great job of keeping me invested in the episode. But I would have to say my favorite comedic moment was the mess Raj got himself into with Howard's mom not letting him leave her house. Raj, listen to me. You need to get out of there. But I have a cream sherry hangover and I smell blintzes. <laughs> if you don't leave now, she'll use food and guilt to keep you there for the rest of your life. Oh, Howard, stop. Trust me, you're not Jewish. That's how they get you. Can I have to say the last shot of the episode was the best part of the whole thing, because Raj manages to escape out the window, only to be grabbed by these two giant arms get pulled back into the house. Where you going? <laughs> so with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from Big Bang Theory? My favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory was probably Howard's entire rant about clubbing in Hollywood, which was amazing. Tell me if this sounds familiar. <clears throat> You pay $15 to park, you stand on the sidewalk for an hour until you break down and give the bouncer 20 bucks to let you in. You push your way to the bar where you drink an $18 Cosmopolitan, and you stare at a pretty girl and imagine your perfect life together, your children, grandchildren. Meanwhile, she leaves with a guy who claims he wrote Beverly Hills Chihuahua. (laughs) Then you give up on anyone never loving you, go to Marie Callender's, buy a pie, and eat it in your car in the parking lot. Living in the L.A. area, I know exactly what he's talking about. I thought the writers were a little cruel when they mirrored the conflict at the end by having Sheldon spoil a major death in The Walking Dead. Harry Potter spoilers are fair game at this point. The final book is well over five years old, and the movie adaptation has come and gone a year and a half ago or two years ago now. But to spoil a major development in a TV season that isn't even finished yet, much less available on DVD, it's just cruel and thoughtless on the part of these writers. Luckily for me, I'm all caught up on Walking Dead and was not spoiled. But for the rest of you, I'm sorry. Thank you. maybe she makes it. Thank you. (laughs) I was livid when they said that. Oh, yeah. Because I'm not caught up yet. Yeah, So I was like, and then I was so expecting a text from Michael, who's egging me to finish watching Walking Dead saying you should have finished watching it yeah you know i was waiting for him to do that but he did not he was nice thankfully all right so are you ready to move on to talking about a person of interest episode that went back to basics absolutely 
All right, let's talk now about the episode titled 1%. Reese and Finch try to help a billionaire tech magnate only to discover that doing so may compromise their existence when he sets out to find out who they really are and what they know. This week's episode of Person of Interest was a fun episode that gave us a great return to what this show does best. Stories about Reese and Finch protecting numbers of people that come up on the machine. As we entered the world of an eccentric businessman filled with high-profile charity auctions, fast cars, and fried dumplings. So, Nico, with Reese being in jail since the hiatus, got last week's episode not even having a person of interest, were you glad to see it back with Fitch get out of the field saving lives? Yep, I felt that the Kara Stanton wrap-up episode last week was a good episode, but really felt like it let down the series by being the first episode that did not have a unique person of interest. This week returned to form and did so with a great person of interest. So I was happy that Reese was back out in the field doing what he does best and Finch leading him from the command center. So yeah. I was very happy with this episode in that regard. Yeah. And with me calling this a fun episode of Person of Interest, don't get the idea that it didn't make you think or speculate. As yes, there was a violent threat to this episode, but the real antagonist to Reese was the billionaire tech magnet he had to protect. Because the guy was incredibly hard for our favorite man in the suit to keep up with. Because when Reese tried to take a more direct approach, the billionaire was extremely difficult. Almost as if he had a death wish. Now, normally on most shows, this type of character would be extremely annoying. But the billionaire Logan Pierce got all the makings of what we'd like to call this podcast a memorable one-off character. As Jimmy Simpson, an actor you might have recognized from Psych, got small parts in movies, gave us a great performance that was just eccentric enough to create comic relief, but still able to support a strong backstory explaining why he kept giving Reese the slip, while giving us a reason to sympathize or root for him. However, even though Pierce was a likable character who we did want Reese to save, the twist in his character was he discovered Reese and Finch's true identity. And that's what made Pierce a antagonist, because his unpredictable personality kept us in suspense throughout the entire episode. Because we were left questioning if he was going to blow the whistle on our hero's operation. Even at the end of this episode, we were still left in suspense. Because we really never got an answer on where Pierce stood on blowing the whistle. So does that mean he will be coming back as a threat to Reese and Finch? Not in a violent capacity, like Elias or Root, but more in a way where he attracts them to a lot of unwanted attention. So, Nico, I mean, kind of what's your response to this question? Get your thoughts on the Logan Pierce character as a whole. Yeah, the Logan Pierce character was a great person of interest. His vast resources made it nearly impossible for Reese to tail him and protect him, which forced him to expose himself and ultimately Finch to Logan to protect him. I think that Logan does not want to expose the person of interest team, per se, but I think he wants to be a part of it, or so, you know, okay. maybe subconsciously wants to be a part of it. He wants to find a way to find some sort of altruistic purpose in his life. Although, he may be trying to figure out how they had the information about his life being in trouble, and is really seeking the machine without knowing he's seeking the machine. So he still could cause trouble for Reese and Finch, but I don't see him as, as intentionally being a villain or right. enemy of the person of interest team, just through his own curiosity becoming an enemy of the team. Right. And that's why I call him an antagonist. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Because yeah. he's not really evil. Right, yeah. right. And really, Logan Pierce wasn't the only source of intrigue in this episode, because we got some great insight on just what exactly happened with the death of Fitch's partner, Nathan, which was vastly different than our predictions, because it appears Nathan was killed trying to save a person of interest after Fitch said he wasn't interested in using the machine to protect acts of violence that weren't high-level terrorist attacks. 
So, Nico, what did you think about the writers choosing to go this direction called Nathan's death? Instead of going with our predictions that the machine was somehow responsible. I liked it, Dan, but I think we are jumping the gun here. We didn't actually see what Nathan did in that flashback and definitely did not see him be killed in trying to stop that murder. I think before we can really discuss it, I think we still need more information and to see actually Nathan die. Could this be how Nathan eventually dies? Yeah, definitely. Could it be that simple? Probably not. Would he still be alive today if he was better at shooting people in the leg like Reese? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Personally, I think there's still one more wrinkle to Nathan's death, but I have a little doubt that it was somehow related to the machine. However, if Nathan did die because he was trying to do exactly what Finch does now, that would make a lot more sense as to why Finch continued it rather than the machine having something to do with his death. Right. If the machine had been responsible, then Finch would not be working with the machine still, I don't think. Right, and the machine causing his death. After seeing this episode, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Nope, Cause we, I agree. We said that it was the machine, but after this, I was like, oh, no, I don't think I'm right anymore. I had always thought that the machine was going to be responsible in some, in the sense that people were coming after it and he died protecting it or something of that yeah. nature. And that would still have worked but i think this makes a lot more sense and it's why finch is doing what he's doing now with reese and i like that it's a little more um back to the basics of vigilante justice you know that urban street crime causes it come there go with the traditional method but i respect them for that yeah i mean that's that's how most of these characters are created and i think the most classic relatable version i mean it's the way to do it i mean sometimes people say that's cliche but i i think this was tasteful them going that route if that's exactly what happened okay. we don't know i agree with you that i think there's one more wrinkle because that's just how the nolans are but we'll see also we did get a lot of carter and fusco in this episode but one of the scenes we did get was quite powerful because fusco trying to come clean with carter about his action with hr was met with her saying that despite their partnership she's unwilling to look past any illegal activities he may have committed making me feel like the bond between fusco and finch which we saw a few episodes ago is going to become even stronger because he's the only one who really seems to understand fusco's goal for redemption also i foresee an event coming in the future where fusco may have to overlook or clear Carter of some illegal action she committed to either like protect her son, Reese, or a person of interest. And she will end up returning the favor by, I guess, clearing his name of the murder he had to commit while working undercover for an HR. Or something's going to resolve this issue. I don't know what, but that's what I'm thinking. So Nico, what do you think of this scene between Carter and Fusco? Could you have any predictions on what's going to happen with their partnership from here on out? Dan, it was indeed an intense scene that left little doubt about where Carter sits when it comes to Fusco and, and her partnership and what what she'll do for it. If memory serves, though, Reese killed both those men. They were bad guys and Reese killed one in the pilot and one who was about to kill Fusco in the woods. I thought he killed that black bald guy. I thought Fusco killed him directly. Did he? Because I was pretty sure that I Reese th- came up out of the woods behind him and shot him when when Fusco had his hands up and was gonna was gonna be executed. Okay, because I thought he killed one of them. I'm remembering that actually Reese killed them both. Because I know the one guy was a bad guy. The second guy was for sure a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're both bad guys, and I think Lionel was partners with the first guy yep. in the pilot that was killed. But anyway, Fusco was tasked with burying their bodies, and he tr- he's tied to them through HR because Simmons saw him burying the second right. one. Regardless, I think that Reese will straighten this all out for Carter when Carter will start to suspect Fusco in the murders and will request that he no longer be a part of the team, and Carter will threaten to quit working with them if they don't get rid of Fusco. Reese will explain that both cops were dirty and the one was about to kill Fusco when Reese killed him. I don't see Carter doing anything 
really illegal in the future. Well, more illegal than what she already does for the person of interest team. So I don't know if she would do anything so bad that she would potentially cover up murders. She thought Fusco did as repayment. But I could see your point about her actually going and proving he was innocent uh, as sort of like a repayment for not him covering for her doing something illegal. I don't, I don't, I just don't see that as a possibility, but I do see her becoming aware of who he is and then her fighting to prove his innocent. I could see that. So I think her finding out the truth and dropping or tying all of it into an HR case is the more likely situation or the most likely situation of how she would go about wrapping this up. And so I think it's going to be good for them. And I think it's going to turn this where she doesn't want to know about his dirty past to them being more trusting partners. Yeah, the other thing with that is, I think, like, if Reese clears it up, I think that's finally a sign to Fusco that he's finally gained his respect. Yeah. I mean, I think they'll still give each other crap because it's just fun to watch and it makes for good television. <laughs> right. But I do think that there's going to be more of a mutual respect between the two when that happens. Again, I don't think that's going to be until like a maybe end of season two thing, but I think that that may happen just to develop their partnership or their friendship more. Okay. Yeah, just throwing it out, though. That's, there's several possibilities there. And really, that's all I've got to say on Person of Interest for this week, because this was another excellent episode, fueling my ever-growing intrigue for this show, because it kept me guessing even after it was over. So, Nico, do you have any final thoughts on this episode, or are you ready to move on to the rundown section? No, I think it's about time to move on to our rundown section. You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's home for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. ENT. We know trauma. And in the rundown section, we will be kicking things off with our very special Super Bowl ad section where we discuss our favorites from the Super Bowl from Sunday. We're going to talk now about our favorite Super Bowl commercials that occurred during Sunday night's exciting event filled with blackouts, Beyonce, and much, much more. So there were a long list of commercials that I enjoyed from this year's Super Bowl, but since we don't have time to go through all of them, I'm going to need to give you a top five list of some of my favorites. So I'm going to count down from five, with five being okay one and one being the best. So five would have to be a tie between the Doritos commercials with the goat for sale and the guy who had his buddies come over, play princess with his daughter. The number four was Deion Sanders disguising himself as Leon Sandcastle to prove he could still be drafted by the NFL in the commercial for the league's network. The Tide commercial with the mysterious Joe Montana shirt stain. And then number two goes Taco Bell doing a Spanish sung version of the music video for We Are Young with Old People. And then number one for me, because I just thought it was fun and lighthearted and a nice blend of what they were trying to do with the Super Bowl with kind of inspirational commercials combined with humor, was the Volkswagen commercial with the office workers talking in a Jamaican accent. So that was my top five. And with that, I did think it was interesting how many companies took after Clint Eastwood's halftime commercial from last year and went with a more dramatic or inspiring commercial, like Coca-Cola highlighting positive moments caught on security cameras. Dodge Ram presenting what was almost a short film about farmers and Jeep doing a salute to America, starting with a quote from Oprah. In my opinion, these are all great attempts to give our audiences something different, but nothing could beat the tradition of Budweiser giving us a heartwarming Clydesdale commercial. So, Nico, I hand things off to you. What's your top five favorite commercials from this year's Super Bowl? Well, Dan, I'm going to do it a little different. I'm going to start with the best and go to number five just to be different. Okay. 
The best one I thought was the Tide Miracle Stain. It's easily the best commercial of the entire game, and not just because it features a stain of my favorite player of all time, Mr. (laughs) Joe Montana, but because it was the funniest and most creative one I saw all year. My second choice would be Time Warner Cable's Enjoy Better slash Cleanup. It was Time Warner. You had me at a family obsessed with The Walking Dead. You throw in a cameo from Daryl Dixon himself, played by Norman Reedus, and I was especially happy. Now, this ad only played in select markets, so maybe you didn't get to see it. But here in California, we definitely saw it, and it was one of my favorites. I wonder if you could YouTube that, because that sounds awesome. Oh, definitely. Actually, IGN has a list of their top 10, so it's it's on that list. Okay. Toyota RAV4, Wish Granted, featuring Kaylee Kuoko, although I did see this one beforehand. But still, it was okay. Number four, Kia Space Babies. How do you explain where babies come from to your young son? If you're this dad, you talk your way around sex by including outer space and animals, including a space panda. I thought it was fun and imaginative with a funny payoff that the kid already knew about sex. I guess the Dodge Ram Farmers one or the Deion Sanders one would be my number five. But the Farmer one felt like it was trying to be Clint Eastwood's great ad from last year rather than anything new or inventive. And by saying that, I'm not complaining about the late, great Paul Harvey, whose audio was lifted from one of his radio broadcasts, but rather the ad in general. I don't know. Everyone else seemed to love it, but I was not as charmed by it. And I wasn't charmed by any of the ones that were trying to pull the Clint Eastwood this year. The Coca-Cola, the Dodge Ram, the Jeep, none of them. They, n- none of them really worked for me. And Budweiser's Clydesdale one, I, I I thought it was okay. Some people were like, oh my God, that's such a great one. It has like a, like a boy and his dog kind of thing. Yeah, that's how I saw it too. But I don't know. Yeah, I just, I just that was nice. I just thought it was a weak year for Super Bowl ads. A very weak year. Yeah, a lot of people felt that. The thing is, it seems like the media is hyping the farmer one more than people are. Yes. Because everyone I've talked to about that commercial said the exact same thing you did. That I felt the same way as well. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, my dad heard Paul Harvey give that on a radio broadcast years ago, or or maybe it was a replay of it from years ago, but he had heard that before. So he recognized with that, and I think it was playing, CBS is the old people's network, so it was more playing to the old people in the crowd. And I watched this game with a lot of people my parents' age, and they liked a lot different commercials than I did. Okay. The Geezer Taco Bell ad played very well with them, and so did this Paul Harvey ad, whereas I didn't like either of them. It just different age groups, different things speak to you, I guess. The the age group that likes the song We Are Young, which is like my brother and sister's age, which are high school, they were amused by the commercial. Okay. But I think it's just because it was that song. Right. And then just real quick, other honorable mentions of commercials that amused me was the one with the kid who drove his dad's Audi to the prom and kisses the prom queen from the can't get socked. That was pretty good. The Hyundai commercials. They were pretty decent. Yeah, they were decent. I like the one with the kid getting his own football team. Totally kind of reminded me of a Luke and Manny situation. Yes. For you Modern Family fans. And then there's the goofy one. This is ridiculous ridiculous commercial but get really amused by dad and i because that was the guy getting a atomic wedgie from the android supermodel for kicking the tires of the kia and then because it was my opening joke for the podcast i have to mention paul rudd and seth rogan being the next big thing for samsung 
So yeah, you know, I much preferred the Samsung El Plato Supreme ad that made fun okay. of all the trademarks and how you can't say Super Bowl on TV yeah. or the NFL will sue you. And so they kept saying the big game or El Plato Supremo, which means yeah. the large plate and the San Francisco 50 minus ones and the Baltimore Blackbirds. I thought that one was much funnier than the next big thing ad that they actually ran during the Super Bowl. I just like those actors. They amuse me. Yeah, but <laughs> Google the El Plato Supreme ad and you will you'll laugh a lot harder than you did for the next big thing. I, I will imagine. It gave me a chuckle. It wasn't gut busting laughs. Mm-hmm. In addition, the movie's trailers always got me fired up for the big summer blockbusters. But I was kind of amused, kind of annoyed by the extended look for Iron Man 3, turning out to be Robert Jowdy Jr., just staring at the camera. Yeah. I laughed, but then I was like, come on, Marvel. I took the time to get on Facebook to check this out. Give me something better than that. Yeah. It's a cheap way to make a buck. I will say that I did sign up for the Axe Go to Space competition. So hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll be going to space. <laughs> all right. Well, good thing that covers the Super Bowl. Hope you all enjoyed so, it. Did you have any quick thoughts on the, the blackout situation? You know, I don't really know. One? They haven't really come out and said exactly what happened or an official thing. It's still under investigation. And I don't know if we're going to know for a while what really happened. I don't think they're ever going to tell us. Yeah. I know that the, the NFL is going to require that the next stadium have a full backup system regardless. And that's going to be ridiculous. But hey, it costs 32 minutes this time. So, Well, the networks hate when that stuff happens. Oh, yeah. They have to scramble the fell airtime and they panic. And it's it's like DEFCON 5 for a network when something like that happens. So, right. And they're restricted yeah. on how many commercials they can show during that kind of thing. So, yeah. I mean, I I expected we'd see some more commercials, but they couldn't. They they couldn't even you know show them for reduced prices because then everybody else would be upset because you know so yeah. it only showed the ones that they had had previously purchased. So they had to stretch it with commentary, and that's always sketchy. <laughs> All right, that was a pretty fun discussion on the Super Bowl. Yes, it was. Ads. And it's now time to jump into our review of the special post Super Bowl episode of Elementary with the episode The Deductionist. While trying to predict the next move of erratic criminal Martin Enos, Sherlock is forced to work with an FBI profiler. Same profiler who wrote an acclaimed book about the notorious criminal. Elsewhere, Watson faces eviction from her apartment. Sunday's special episode of Elementary was blessed with a golden opportunity. Airing after the Super Bowl gave the show basically an opportunity at a second premiere. Such was the number of new viewers who would be exposed to it. And to give Elementary full credit, It's Cold Open made the absolute most of the opportunity with the lowest common denominator hook custom made to snare football fans, namely two women in bikinis shimming around Sherlock. Introducing the violent mystery the show had in store with a fluffy whipped cream garnish of pure sex appeal was a brilliant way to go and the writers justified it with a cute enough button. Sherlock captured the lap dancing robbers that had been arousing and bamboozling New York City. From there, the episode went into one of Elementary's cooler and most terrifying mysteries. A convict taken out of jail to donate his kidney to his sister hops off the table in the OR, absolutely slaughters his team of surgeons, and escapes onto the streets. Remember last week when I said elementary needed to be careful not to have more losers than winners? Well, this episode was definitely a winner. Eans, 
aka the peeler, rising up from the operating table in nothing but a paper gown and killing everyone in the room stood out as genuinely unnerving. I guess I've never seen someone in scrubs get stabbed. I have seen them get shot in other shows, but I guess I just have compartmentalized the genres of medical drama and cops finding villains, so the overlap felt weirdly scary and fresh, and the way it was filmed and edited made it exponentially creepier. Violence for the sake of violence on TV isn't cool, but if you're going to use it by throwing in a violent bit to make your audience terrified of your villain, this will do the trick. So then the peeler was out and about terrorizing New York City in every conceivable way. An FBI profiler showed up to figure out where he would go now that he was off his chain. Sherlock seemed slightly more awkward around her and finally told slash screamed at Watson, If you're asking if we had sex, yes, obviously which was one of the more charming ways to use a character's social weirdness to cut to the heart of the matter. Yes, the profiler had knocked Sherlock's boots and then spilled his secrets to the world, and Sherlock was still a little tender about it. So this was something he and the peeler had in common. Neither of them liked being, quote, figured out by the uppity blonde in the FBI, whose profiles didn't so much profile as talk a lot of smack. In fact, she had talked so much smack about Eanes and his upbringing that his parents basically died of shame, while the father committed suicide and the mother died of grief. Shame and grief were the real villains here. It was scary enough and sort of plausible enough, even when they got to the apartment of the sister whose kidneys were ruined and they found her whole house stocked with foods that ruin your kidneys, so they realized she was complicit in the Peeler's scheme, and that was a stretch. But again, I sort of went with it and I enjoyed the ride. It helped that the actress playing the sister was absolutely convincing at being both sick and crazy. Beautifully balancing this ultra-violent psychological thriller case was the weird subplot with Watson's apartment. The whole amateur porn idea was actually very funny. The fact the show owned that and then turned it into this recurring weird visual joke, especially when they showed clips of that porn, was so weirdly funny and tangentially brilliant. I love that Elementary took a little leap there and injected some off-kilter humor that way. It was actually very good, and I have to say, bravo. It balanced the grisliness of the peeler somewhat with this comedy of the porn. So yes, a weird and wonderful episode. All right, with that, I think it's about time we move into the Monday night with the comedy How I Met Your Mother and the episode, P.S. I Love You. Robin's past as a Canadian pop star when she went to the mall is revealed when Barney uncovers the lost episode of a music documentary series in which she was featured as Robin Sparkles. And Marshall and Lily have some concerns about Ted's latest girlfriend. And really with that, what else is new? For many How I Met Your Mother fans, P.S. I Love You was an episode that's been highly anticipated for quite some time, ever since it was first announced that Robin Sparkles would be making her fourth and potentially final appearance on the show. While this season has definitely had its rough patches, I'm happy to say that for me, this week's installment was a satisfying redemption. The story began with a mysterious revelation for Barney, as he learned that Robin had been a stalker in the twilight of her days as a Canadian teen pop star. It wasn't long before Barney found out from Simon, returning guest star James Vanderbeek, that Robin had her own episode of Underneath the Tunes, a VH1-style documentary revealing the complete story of Sparkle's fall from grace. Along with it came a brand new music video titled P.S. I Love You, 
featuring the darkest and craziest Robin yet, Robin Daggers, as well as very angst-ridden and Alanis Morissette-inspired performance from Colby Smulders. How I Met Your Mother introduced us to yet another great theory about life, the Dobbler-Dahmer theory. As Ted explained, there's a fine line between love and insanity, and the Dobbler-Dahmer theory determines whether or not you should be worried. If the person trying to find you is a Dobbler, she's just like John Cusack's character in Say Anything. You might find her outside your window with a boombox, but there's nothing to be afraid of. If the person trying to track you down is a Dahmer, as in Jeffrey Dahmer, you should be concerned. I really enjoyed this episode, and I'm happy to say that this week's installment was a satisfying redemption for the slow start to this season and all the issues I had with theories and episodes not just working early on. All of those things worked in this episode. So with that, I think it's about time we move into the following with the third episode, The Poet's Fire. Carol sends a new follower, Rick Kester, on a special mission. Meanwhile, Emma and Jacob grow closer and Paul becomes jealous and flashbacks reveal how Ryan and Carol first met. It's hard to imagine that an episode that features the immolation of a critic, two brutal stabbings to the gut, another stabbing to the underside of a mandible, and the kidnapping and abuse of an innocent young woman was able to save its most chilling and likely controversial sequence for the final few moments. Yet the 11th hour reveal of the murder by numbers sort of tutelage that the cult cell one were providing for young Joey served up the images that will likely disturb some viewers and inspire righteous outrage in others. The following has already been subject to a fair bit of criticism about its violent imagery, but the idea that Emma and Jacob are attempting to craft a killer out of Carol's kidnapped son is perhaps the most risky uh, on the parts of the creators. This in turn works in terms of the overall trajectory of the narrative and raises some interesting nature versus nurture questions about the creation of sociopaths. Questions which meld quite nicely into some of the larger cult-slash-follower, killer-born or killer-made themes of this show. Yet it also highlights the, quote, is violence in the media affecting our children question. The scene somewhat inherently says, if we expose young minds to violence, then we can breed violence in them. It'll be interesting to see what response, if any, audiences have to this new aspect of the story. So Andy, I personally don't believe that violence in film, television, and video games breeds violence in our youth, but do believe that exposure to real violence at a young age can breed violence in the individual. The show Dexter explored this theory as well, and we've seen evidence that children who are abused often become abusers themselves later in life. So Andy, what is your take on this re-education of Carol's son, Joey? When that scene came in, I was kind of terrified because I didn't see it coming at all. I, I knew that when as soon as they pressed play on that email that they was going to... I didn't know it was going to go on so long. I thought it was going to go for like two minutes most. Just showing that, that he is alive. And that thing with the rat was kind of clever like or something like that. Or that thing that with, with the glass. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was about it. But then it got more and more. Um, and I started, whoa, they're getting real dark here. But here's the thing. I agree with you. I don't really believe in, in that nonsense as well because in first of all parents have a responsibility for what kids are watching at a young age if their kids are watching the following then the, the parents aren't being responsible enough because given to what hour it's airing and so on it's up to the parents but to me like violence in film in violence in film and television and video games 
if, to me, I don't really believe in that. I, of course, I know there are cases when people get inspired by violence, but that could that could be so many different reasons. There are cases where people are going through traumatic mentally illness, and you know, like kids, like like you said, that gets abused often does become abused as in later life. And imagine, like I can imagine a teenager being abused by his parents, having a tough life and everything, and he plays these violent games when he gets inspired by like that but it's because he you know it, it depends on like the situation so, so I, don't, I don't really like when people say like you know oh violence in film and television video games that's the reason you know no mostly it's because of the environment if example if our parents are not being responsible enough and not you know telling the kids that you know no you can't watch it go to your room or something like that then it's their fault not you know don't blame it on these producers and writers and actors of these great tv shows and, and episodes and movies and so on so it depends on this the person that we're talking about but in general i would say no i don't think that it's it's going to affect the average young viewer yeah i i think that people who already have a propensity for violence may be inspired by seeing violence but they already had that it's not going to be the actual film television video game that they played that caused them to be violent they're going to have had that in them already or experiences such as i said real violence in their real life at an early age could cause some sort of sociopathic break or a psychological break so i don't that's why i i brought up this question to you it's a good question it's a really good question now this week's theme focused on revenge In fact, the cult member of the week's kill was in the name of revenge. This week's disciple, the Poe mask wearing Rick Kester, was far more compelling than last week's adventure with poor, easily fooled, and now dearly departed Jordy. Perhaps that's simply by virtue of Kester's quote-unquote writing his own story and committing a visually alarming and unique crime. I really haven't seen very many cases where a person just walks up, dumps accelerant on someone, and then lights them on fire in public. We've seen immolation before in other shows, but not necessarily in this scene. So that was kind of unique. His act again highlighted Carol's ego and his failure as a writer, which set the professor on his path initially. Likewise, it was the revenge kidnapping of their son, Joey, that continues to tie Hardy to Claire, which in turn feeds Joe Carroll's obsession with the former agent as the protagonist of his, quote, story. As he said himself, Carol is not above revenge, and Hardy's relationship with his ex-wife was a humiliation that a man with his ego could not let go without vindication. Wrapping up in the revenge plot this week was also the mysterious sixth cult member that was mentioned in the early part of the episode. It turns out that Maggie Kester, the, the supposed abused wife of Rick Kester, this week's revenge killer, was the sixth member of Cult Cell 1. So Andy, what did you think of this week's chapter being about revenge? Did it work for you? And were you fooled by Maggie Kester or were you like those of us watching it here that figured she was in on the plan from the beginning? I was going back in between places with this character because at first when she is hiding in the, was it a closet? Yes, it was a closet, mm-hmm. I think. And she just, you know, they open the door and, you know, she comes out with a knife and so on. It, it kind of gave me a hint. I was yeah. thinking, like, you know, what, what, like, what average person would stand and just prepare it with a knife like that, you, you know? But then there was times when I'm like, okay, she's just being, she's afraid. She's a scared woman and she's afraid of her husband. But then they were probably like, you know, when she and um, that FBI agent went to her house and it was so dark and like and it was really going in between back and forth because I was thinking she seems scared but like but otherwise it could be just be really good acting to just fool us but once she stabbed that man and so on it was it was a shock to me actually I, I'm gonna admit that because I was thinking for she is 
she's fooling them, but I didn't want it to be that paranoid because it then it makes me think like every then it makes me look like I think it, every character that is a victim or something like that is just part of the cult. But this just shows how dangerous this whole twist is. But yeah, the the whole theme of revenge did work for me, and uh, but and Maggie Kessler, she she fooled me. She really did. Yeah, I was surprised by the violence of her kill. I was not expecting it. But then at the same time, where he was stabbed, I thought because it didn't penetrate into the brain case, it only got into his oropharynx or his his mouth area. He shouldn't have bled to death. They should have been able to stop the bleeding, but he did die. So I was like, oh, come on, guys, that, that, that wouldn't have bled enough. You should have been able to get enough pressure on that to stop the bleeding. But that's my medical brain, you know, <laughs> getting in the way of my critic brain. You should be a consultant for the show. Like, you know, no, 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 this does not work. Let's reshoot it, rewrite the script and so on. But one follow-up question I had was that I was surprised that they killed off one of them. I, I don't know if this guy was supposed to be a main character, but I was surprised that they did kill off someone from the FBI. I was not surprised that he was the one to die if someone from the team was going to die because he I, had not had a, a an important role so far in the show. I agree, but I was thinking like you know that, that it's been like that with many other different shows and with other characters that in the first three episodes there's always these two characters we have to wait for you know, to see see some development. Like for me, one recent example was like with Yamdo from Torchwood. Mm-hmm. It took a few episodes and before he actually got developed and so i was thinking maybe it's that this is the same case here but then when he got killed i'm like dying i'm just waiting just walked in here and just killed that sucker off <laughs> i mean i know i'm kidding but i was surprised that they, that they did kill somebody off you know you don't expect that that much you know when it got, gets to into free episode it's like with episode five or seven maybe that's when they are gonna start surprising you with those kinds of things yeah it's a good good thought because it was a little surprising but i thought if anyone on the team he would be the one because of that you know because he hadn't been developed yet but you're right it does take episodes and you need screen time to develop these people or maybe that's why they killed him now so that it's one less person on the team or maybe they're going to bring in another new addition to the team i don't know anything could happen indeed i did have one issue with this episode and it was a critical mistake made by the show in this episode the killer was a kid named rick as we've already mentioned and he liked fire and he was singling out the trifecta carol blames for his downfall the show itself pointed out a quote the generous critic fanned the poet's fire and taught the world with reason to admire it was used as sort of an explanation that the fiery death of one of carol's most vocal critics and yet it definitely mentions fire but the quote seems to be about how a critic can drive an artist to do something more fantastic so that can also apply here ryan hardy called the quote from his memory and made the connection that generated the leads to get them off and running he said that's poe except it's not poe it's Pope, as in Alexander Pope, a poet and critic who died a full 65 years before Poe was even born. Now, did the characters do this on purpose, or did the writers? Or was it an heir born out of arrogantly not checking the source by the writer of this episode to be sure and assuming it was actually a Poe quote? Regardless, the rest of the cult continues to gain dimensions as the weeks progress, It is the cult cell one love triangle that truly holds my attention. The three-way triangle of jealousy could easily feel trite and overplayed, but so far it doesn't. It's really working for me. And more and more of the history of these three is revealed. The danger and tension of this powder keg of a situation is acutely and uncomfortably felt. Emma is just as likely to slash a knife without warning as she is to patiently raise the boy in Joe's likeness. I find myself completely invested in this storyline, anxious to see where it will turn next. Each time I think I have it figured out, they throw us for an emotional loop. 
Perhaps most impressively, this show has created characters that we can understand, if not really relate to. The horror that we feel in the face of Megan Leeds kidnapping, that's the girl that he went out and seduced and then kidnapped, is equaled by the desire to see just where these three will take that. They provide the classic squeamish pleasure slash pain of the thrill ride that horror fans often respond to. We've not yet gotten to know a victim, really, before they're killed. Will the show let us do that with this Megan Leeds character and then take her away in a few episodes? So, Andy, what do you think of the mistake made by these writers? Was it intentional or merely a mistake? And where do you think this kidnapped girl in the basement story arc is headed? And do you have any final thoughts? First of all, I I really don't have anything to say about them. The mistake because I I didn't notice that because I don't really know my history is a don't underestimate just because I'm from Europe no but the thing is I just didn't know about I was just kidding before I I don't really know about Pope and so much I wasn't really paying attention to that I I was more invested in like you said I'm invested in this triangle drama and so and I have I I have a feeling that Emma is gonna snap faster than than Paul does because she's crazy. She's a psychopath. I don't see what Jacob sees in her. But it's interesting. And I didn't expect that Paul would be so... I don't want to say violent. If that it's, That's not what I'm looking for. But I'm looking for... Well, okay, maybe violent then. Because he. I thought that he just wanted to get, you know, a one-night stand and just be like, yeah, I yeah. nailed her. Yeah, but I'm really liking this this storyline. It's you know it's different because I've been seeing so much drama on shows on like on the CW or mostly on the CW. So and this is a different take on it. And it's you know I am rooting I am rooting for for Paul because Emma is creepy. But it's also interesting that what he and Jacob were talking about it because now I'm wondering is Jake ashamed of what happened or is he ashamed that he is supposedly gay? And I that's something that I'm really invested in to see. One thing I was thinking about this kidnapped girl thing. I was thinking I don't. I wanted to think like, you know, oh, this they're probably gonna cut her or kill her or whatever. But it would be interesting. And this is just like really a wishful t- thinking. And this might I might sound crazy, but I am fifty percent. But like, it would be interesting if they would use like the Stockholm syndrome. Like, if she would get like this, the so- Stockholm syndrome, you know, become obsessed by her kidnappers and become a new member of the whole of CZ One. Yeah, I was thinking a similar thing that they might try to to convert her if they could, and that's an interesting way that they might try to do it since they're already trying to cultivate Joe's son, Joey, into a killer as well so they might try to use some of the same manipulation and use the fact that she might develop stockholm syndrome eventually so yeah i I like that idea i think that paul grabbed her initially or tried to seduce her initially to prove to himself he's not gay or to try and you know he's struggling with because he's very much in love with Jacob. And before that, he probably was not aware that he was gay or that he was bisexual or whatever the case may be. And he's trying to hide those feelings and trying to push them down. And so he went out and tried to find someone to have sex with to hide those feelings or to prove to everyone that he's not gay. So I think that that's an interesting, interesting thing. And that that will feed into his whatever he does to whether he tortures her or whatever will bear out of those feelings that he he has to prove that he's not gay or whatever, whatever he has to prove to himself. Yeah. The only, and also, I just want to add, you know, because the only reason why I'm thinking, why I suggest this Stockholm Syndrome is just, you know, I want to, sh- I don't want it to be predictable. Well, I don't want, you know, people being kidnapped and killed and whatever. I, I, I like the idea 
of I, I'm not saying that a cult is a good thing, but on, like seeing on a TV show, it's kind of intriguing. So you know, if they would do that, it would be something something that people wouldn't see from a from a mile. And it's that's why I'm saying I'm not saying that I'm worshiping these kinds of thing. I'm because I, I I just sound weird. I'm saying when I'm saying these kinds of thing because I've never expressed myself about these kinds of TV shows. So that's why I'm suggesting it. No, uh, no, I liked I liked your idea for sure. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, I think like, to the listeners, thinking like, you know, oh my god, this Andy dude is crazy. No, I don't. I don't think you're crazy. I think it was a good idea. Oh, thanks. I don't. I don't think you're crazy too. All right, man. Good episode. Yeah, good episode. I think that wraps up our discussion for this week. And with that, we're going to move on. Yeah. Thanks again, Andy, for joining us once again for the following section. And now Dan's going to rejoin us for the bones section. Yes, with the waste of time episode entitled "The Doll and the Derby." The dismembered body of a roller derby skater means Angela goes undercover at the rink to find more clues to the woman's murder. Elsewhere, Cam worries over the sheer number of doctor appointments Booth is going to and presses him for details. This week's episode of Bones was another complete waste of my time, to the point that I used my DVR to fast forward through the overly long scene of Angela trying out for the roller derby team. Because I thought the plotline where Cam was worried about Booth's health due to his several visits to the hospital was a cheap gimmick to keep us watching with the possibility that his brain tumor had come back. But I do have to give Bones props for raising awareness about a disease affecting children. Also, they did finally mention something about Hodgins going broke, but it was more as an offhanded joke, which makes sense as Wu reminded me that money doesn't matter to his character. However, I still feel that we need to see some repercussions come out of Hodgins losing all of his money, just at least to raise the stakes for our characters when Palat shows up the next time. And even though we see no signs of it yet, I'm holding out hope for a plotline where Booth and the Squid Squad must race to bring Palat to justice to keep the Jeffersonian from going out of business. So, Nico, did you have any thoughts on this episode? Because it was probably really quick, so there's not much to say about it. Yeah, the entire story arc about Pallant stealing all the money from Hodgins' family fortune a few weeks ago is is stupid. And here's why. There was easily evidence that it was an illegal wire transfer slash draining of the funds, and thus the banks would have to return all of it, all of the illegally stolen money. They're not broke, and it's stupid to continue this storyline. I know it's going to raise the stakes, Dan, and you make a good point if they do go continue to harp on it, but it, it just, it's not realistic. Right. But you are correct that it doesn't matter to them because money was never really who he was or what he was about. But at the same time, this unrealistic story is just another reason that the show takes me out of the story every week. Also, the whole secret of hiding of what Booth was doing was just a very poorly done way of doing something good, talking about a disease that affects 1 in 3,000 children. Great cause, horribly done. Sort of microcosm for the entire series these days. Great premise, horribly done. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And I mean, you're right. The money thing is ridiculous, but that's the best thing they can do right now because yeah. they've gotten that far off the rails. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I think we've spent enough time on Bones. Let's move into Tuesday night with a great comedy that keeps getting better each week. And that's New Girl with the episode Table 34. Cece hopes to find a prospective husband at a dating convention for East Indians. 
Meanwhile, Jess and Nick find themselves in a compromising position in front of Sam. Can Winston gets his groove back. Following last week's turn of events with Nick and Jess, it came as no surprise that Table 34 was largely focused on the repercussions of the twosomes forbidden and exciting kiss. But since Nick refused to confront the situation head on, opting instead to moonwalk out of the room, Jess fell back on Cece to talk things out. Meanwhile, Schmidt, decked out as the fortune teller from Big, had plans on surprising Cece at her Indian marriage convention in hopes of winning her back. Nick and Winston tagged along, also dressed to the nines, but what Nick didn't account for was Jess showing up as well. This leads to a series of entertaining convention activities including hula hoop ring around, speed dating, and newspaper table building. Ultimately, Nick had to admit to Sam that he kissed Jess. Truthfully, it was probably better to get this over with straight away as opposed to stretching it out over several episodes. Winston's storyline was kind of a one-off, but amusing all the same. Upon getting his groove back after a night of passion with Daisy, Winston proclaimed himself to be the Mojo Man. I'm the Mojo Man! And spent most of his screen time pretending to be a superhero of sexual charisma. While his conversations with the convention staff lady were more of a side distraction than anything else, there was still something kind of cool about Winston having his own little mini-adventures that no one ever knows is happening. But it's much better than just tacking himself onto someone else's story anyway. Now just remember, wherever you are, the Mojo Man is there. The best one-liner of the night came from Nick. I'm a man, Jessica! What? Pink robes are my catnip! So, another solid episode that keeps getting better each week. And another show that keeps getting better each week, if you can believe that, is Justified. With this week's episode, Ken. Raylan encounters unexpected danger when searching for Drew Thompson. Those of us waiting for Justified Season 4 Big Bad to show his or her face, with or without teeth, have been disappointed so far. Billy the Snake Hugger is dead. Randall is halfway to Florida prison right now. Limehouse has been minding his own barbecuing business back at the holler. Boyd seems to be doing his own thing, and I doubt he'll be the big bad again since he seems to be a better character when tangentially going up against Ray while still able to help him out in other scenes. We just don't know who the big bad's going to be. Now, talking with a friend of mine, he was totally bummed about this, and I suspect he's the voice of a growing segment of Justified fans. He says Raylan is at his best when he has a formidable nemesis to toss wisecracks at while he strains against his personal version of the Marshall Code, especially when the Big Bad is full of enough twisted personality to fill a whole season of something like Criminal Minds. It's a trusted formula that Justified has used in the past, but moseyed away from this season, opting instead to focus on a cold case that Raylan's dad, Arlo, is somehow mixed up with. But is it working? Well, for me, I say absolutely yes. But then again, I love this show. For some, it is definitely not working. But then again, some people like Honey Boo Boo, so you can't please everyone. This show and this episode was great. One of the finest features of Justified is how it portrays people in Kentucky, makes them sympathetic and constructs them into the everyman slash everywoman. The Hill people are the country bumpkinness of country bumpkins, and there's no hiding that. I even said that they are people other hicks call hicks while watching this episode. But the reason why this series succeeds is because it reminds us that the characters are all people first and Harlan County folks second. Writing them into the series must have been a challenge, and maybe even a bar bet that this writer lost. But it's a fantastic start into the slice of Kentucky life stuff that got us interested in the series in the first place. And once again, it worked great here. 
Ken was about the search for Drew Thompson and the most solid meat and potatoes episode of season four so far in that regard. I've always loved how they made Boyd and Raylan into a almost grittier Dukes of Hazard when they work together, even though they should never really work together. You know, Raylan being a U.S. deputy marshal and Boyd being a criminal and all. When Raylan slapped the cuffs on Boyd and talked about his sense of humor, you were laughing. Admit, come on. It's good TV when they're on the screen together, and the fact that they've only done this sporadically instead of forcing the fit too early or too often is why it works so well each time. Much like Rachel, the writers seem to be letting Tim Gutterson's details bleed slowly into this season's story. They talked about his PTSD earlier this season, and it's been brought up a few times before. In this episode, he immediately talked about how he was too young to shoot Taliban members, and then he connected with Colt on fighting the war on terror. Nice slow leak there. Combining that with Tim's story of meeting some hill people in his childhood, he's becoming quite the character. In essence, this was a return to the form of writing we've seen in Justified that they seemed to abandon last week. It was clear, fair, productive, and built towards something greater. Raylan and Boyd chasing after the same person presents a cat and mouse-like game that all Justified fans will want to see. They even shook hands on it, and Raylan was the one who played dirty first with that little handcuff trick. Raylan and Boyd in a competition is going to be fun to watch for a lot of reasons. Also, in this episode, we were also introduced to Nick Augustine, who's played by Mike O'Malley. Augustine got a pretty justified introduction, shook hands with a few people, then murdered an old friend point blank, and continued his conversation without skipping a beat to show just how big of a badass he is. After last week's enjoyable and largely conclusive episode, Ken pulled back the slingshot to load a new setup episode that gave us another piece of the puzzle that is the cold case. But we're five episodes into the season and only have guesses as to where things are headed. Some viewers might have trouble with the lack of a big bad, but that allows Justified to tell more of the smaller stories it's so good at. Overall, Ken set us back to what makes Justified great. Slice of life Kentucky, greater plots at hand building towards something, the drug business in rural and city Kentucky, and development of greater characters. There's a lot of good stuff to go in this season, and it looks like it's going to be a good one. And with us wrapping up the Justified discussion, it's about time to jump into another drama we love on cable each week, and that's White Collar. With the episode Empire City. Peter and Neil uncover a cab con, which leads to a classy jazz club and some old-fashioned undercover work. I've come to consensus with White Collar that some of the series' best episodes are Ma-centric stories. Because that's exactly what we got here. Because it was revealed that among the many oddball things he does during the day, Maz works as a taxi driver. Which in other words means great comedic potential for his character. However, what I think really delivered the laughs with Boz this week was his anger at being a con man who was conned by the case Peter and Neil were investigating, rather than Moz being a taxi driver. Then about halfway through the episode, things shifted towards focusing on New York's jazz club seat, along with his history, mainly through the Fable Cotton Club, and as a huge fan of jazz, especially during the era when it was most popular in the 1930s and 40s, I was completely sucked into the atmosphere of this episode. Also to top it off, we got some jazz singing performances from veteran TV actor Diane Carroll, who plays Neil's neighbor, June, that were quite enjoyable. Lastly, I was kind of annoyed that the place where the evidence clearing Neil's father of the murder was in a place so obvious as the Empire State Building. But this was really the only hiccup in an episode that I'm going to classify as light, easy TV watching. That gave a nice breather there for the more intense episodes of our favorite shows that we watched this week, like Castle, Following, Justified, and The Americans. 
So that wraps it up for White Collar. Is it time to move on to Wednesday night? Indeed it is. Yeah, let's move on to Arrow with the episode Betrayal. Infinite criminal Cyrus Vanch plans to take on the hood to reestablish his reputation as Starling City's leading crime lord. Meanwhile, Oliver confronts his mother over the copy of the list that Walter found. Okay, Quentin unintentionally endangers Laurel. After talking to Wu during my guest spot on last week's episode of Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast, some of my predictions on what's coming down the road for Arrow has changed. And this episode supported my news theories because the vigilante Tommy and Detective Lance call being put at each other's throats for their obsession to protect Laurel is going to make Kerr eventually become Black Canary because it means of showing she could take care of herself without having to depend on the hood for her father's brand of justice. Because for Diggs' role in the episode, you know Oliver was kind of angry at him for looking into his mom, but I took this as a sign that Digg has really begun to care about Oliver because a close friend, or almost a brother, and doesn't want to see him get hurt. Also, you kind of love Digg always keeping his cool to the face of embarrassment, got walking in on a 50th birthday party, got dealing with Malcolm Merlin's bodyguard through pulling that slick maneuver with swapping out a sawed recorder for a cigarette lighter. Almost all the characters within a superhero universe solve problems with their fists, guns, or amazing abilities, but Dig holds his own in this world of fantasy using his wits and stealth maneuvers, making him a character on this show that's incredibly unique and fun to watch. Finally, there was a little confusion with the audience I was watching the show with on the island flashbacks, because I was pretty sure it was established there were two guys on the island wearing Deathstroke's trademark black and gold mask. The soldier Oliver met in this episode, named Slade Wilson, which is also Deathstroke's name in the comic books, could another guy who we've seen torture Oliver to battle Yao Fei. However, my brother thinks Slade Wilson, to the guy we've seen wearing Deathstroke's mask over the past few episodes, is the same person. Be that Slade figured out Yao Fei was going to rendezvous with Oliver in the crashed airplane, could beat him there to ambush him. Obviously, my response to that is, the guy clearly said there are two people wearing the mask on the island, but my brother's convinced me that it's a split personality thing. Because he's one person who's on Friar's side when the mask is on, and another person on Yao Fade's side when the mask is off. As you guys might know all too well, with these brotherly arguments, neither one of us can admit that one of us is wrong. So it's on you guys, Andy and Nico, to settle our little spats. Well, that's all for me on Arrow this week. Now we're going to hand it off to Nico with his thoughts. Yeah, that's actually kind of a cool idea. I hadn't thought of that. I'm not sure if it's right, but it's very valid regardless. I like your brother. (laughs) Yeah, and to mention it is cool. Yeah. Plenty of stuff and things and whatnot happened in this episode, but only one element really mattered to me. This was the episode where Manu Bennett finally made his debut as an unmasked Deathstroke. Of course, it quickly became apparent that the situation involving Deathstroke, Yao Fei, and everyone else on the island is even more complicated than we previously suspected, and even more so now that Dan's brother is throwing this split personality theory out there. Yes. I don't know about you guys, but I'm loving all the crazy plot twists on the island. Luckily, Bennett did not disappoint at all in his portrayal of Slade, which is good because so many of the villains on this show do nothing but disappoint me. I won't go into this because I know I'm not the only one who thinks this out there, but I am a minority on our network. Bennett brought all the intensity and physical presence that he's become known for in the show Spartacus. And what's more, he was fairly likable and certainly identifiable in his single-minded quest to get the heck off that island. For his first scene, Slade's role cast serious doubt on whether he was actually the same man who was serving as Friar's bodyguard and had tortured Oliver. And whether you believe Dan's brother's theory or if you think it's maybe two different guys, it's still, it's going to be up in the air. Had I not known that Bennett was specifically cast as Slade, 
I might not even have suspected that's who he was. Is there some sort of elaborate ruse at play that seems to cause Yao Fei and Deathstroke to shift allegiances with every episode? It's what it seems like so far. But by the end of the episode, a bit of the fog and confusion began to lift. It turns out that Slade Wilson is not the same man, or at least that's what it appears to be, as Fryer's bodyguard. But they are both former comrades and intelligence operatives who now seem to have fallen on opposite sides of the conflict. Needless to say, I'm intensely curious to see how this all plays out. What the relationship between Oliver and Slade is going to be in the future, and whose mask it was that was arrowed to the beach in the pilot episode. Suddenly, the flashback scenes have taken on a new sense of importance and excitement. How awesome would it be if we got an entire episode set as a flashback to the island? Now, I don't think we're ready for it story-wise yet, but still, excited could be very awesome if we got that in the future. And it could be next week. Really? Okay. Just with what I saw happen in the trailer. Great episode, best development of a villain so far for me. So, Andy, what are your thoughts? Well, to you ladies out there, I'm going to bring the female perspective. Manuel Bennett is hot. He's the hottest Slade Wilson we ever had. But I, I love Bennett. I think he's, he makes a great Slade Wilson. He, like you guys said in the beginning, that, you know, you didn't really know where to, uh, which side he's on and so on. To answer that dance theory, uh, it depends on, are we allowed to talk about what traders have shown us for the next week? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay, there's a scene where Ma- you can see a Slade and his partner standing right opposite, like, in front of each other. Because just to the left, during the whole explosion on the island, you can see somebody wearing black suit and having the mask on, but you see it from the back while you see uh, Slade walking up towards them. So, sorry, Dad. No multiple personality order there. Okay, it's sorry to my brother there, Candy. Okay. Sorry, Dad's brother. Okay. But, but it was a cool idea, though. I had to throw it out. It's there. a really cool idea. I think that would put a really... Had a, put a really cool twist on that character from its uh, comic book mythology because I don't think he he doesn't have he's not crazy I think or has something like that in the comics right right yeah but the thing that I felt it wasn't this wasn't on purpose by Bandit's part but I think he kind of outshined the other big guest actor which, which was Dr. Frankenstein I mean David Andrews as Iris Wench who looks a lot of like Dr. Victor Frankenstein from Once Upon a Time maybe they're twins I don't know but he kind of outshined him a bit kind of stole the show but not by purpose of course it, it was just that his presence had more effect even though it was on the island but I love Anders I love that they have left the door open for future episodes so I'm looking forward he did a great job with what he got and like Nico said the ending was I screamed a bit because that was I, I didn't think I knew he was going to confront her at some point again but not as this soon and as, as the arrow so I'm looking forward to see next week's episode see what happens and it's, re- it's really pumping up it's really pumping up yeah yeah Agreed. And so many more sexy villains, by the way. I'm just saying. All right, guys. I know we could talk about Arrow all week long, but that's what we have Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast for. So we'll leave the rest of the discussion up to them and go ahead and listen to their podcast also on the ATA network. And they do an excellent job. Absolutely. Now we're going to move into The Americans on its second episode entitled The Clock. Philip and Elizabeth risk exposure while planting a bug in the defense secretary's office. So far, the Americans writers are doing a really good job of establishing the very different approaches and personalities of Elizabeth and Philip. Their mission this week involved them having to do something awful, endangering the life of an innocent college kid to get his mom to do something for them. Both did their duty and went through with it, but right now we can see how this more obviously affects Philip. 
he can't help but show how much it upset him to nearly smother this guy to death. Elizabeth on the surface is cool as a cucumber though. She actually poisoned this kid in the first place, but if it bothers her, she's not letting anyone know. There were a lot of strong moments for Philip this week, and Matthew Reese is doing great work with the character. I loved seeing the persona he took on, the sleaze stash included, when dealing with that boy's mother, Viola, and he very matter-of-factly explained the situation to her and what was at stake. A careful balance of being menacing yet reassuring, letting her know in the most straightforward and believable manner possible that this was very real, but that she could end the situation by assisting them. In the midst of this, he also got to show his fighting prowess again with a tussle with Viola's brother. It's great that the show is willing to embrace the more sensational spy movie slash TV show elements like that while still keeping the characters relatable and grounded. Ironically, from what little we've seen of Philip and Elizabeth so far, the two representatives of an allegedly oppressed nation are more romantically progressive than their suburban American counterparts. They both engage in extramarital sexual activity as part of the gig, and it seems to be working out just fine for them. Of course, that all may be changing. Tonight we witnessed Elizabeth's light teasing, but yet also grilling, of Philip about his steamy Deputy Undersecretary of Defense's wife contact. Totally wife-like. Add to that Mr. Jennings' trachea-collapsing fury over Elizabeth's past assault in the last episode, and it's likely these two lovebirds will give way to more traditional possession the more they open up to one another during each mission, and I think will eventually actually fall in love if they are not already. Speaking of which, I appreciated the clear objective here in this episode. A conversation about national defense was imminently going to take place, and the Jennings needed to rig a clock in order to hear the juicy details. If Philip's reluctance to pull off said mission on such short notice is the, quote, weakness Elizabeth mentioned last week, then this episode saw her understanding the source of his cautiousness. As soon as Philip slammed Viola up against the wall, it wasn't just the housekeeper's framed paintings that shook. Elizabeth saw her values knocked off balance as well. Which brings up the essential conflict of the Jennings relationship. How does compartmentalizing the murdery part of one's life sync up with the otherwise wholesome facade? Granted, no one was killed this episode, but Viola's son came pretty darn close to dying, and Philip not only distanced himself from the responsibility, but actively criticized this lady's belief in God, saying, People who believe in God are always the worst targets. Whether the housekeeper's spirituality phased him on a personal level or stood as a minor frustrating obstacle, we at least know a little bit more about the Jennings, their politics, and maybe their belief system. But still, as spies, can they be any kind of good parents when behind the scenes they're threatening the lives of innocents? Or is the murdery part of their job the real facade and deep down the Americans are true suburbanites looking to shake off the shackles of espionage? It's the genius of the show that keeps these two aspects in active balance, and that conflict will need to be presented in increasing discussion so as not to favor one side over the other and settle on an answer too soon. For the time being, though, it's looking like Elizabeth doesn't want to deal with such questions, believing that her son Henry would adjust to anything in her absence, but Paige was, quote, delicate somehow. Elizabeth's resolve to go down in a hail of bullets rather than deal with the torture of having her kids taken away smacks of a person who's had her value system cracked. One element that continues to be surprisingly entertaining is how plain and alluring suburban life appears in and of itself. Rife with father-son night hockey, neighbors drinking beers, streets named Golden Meadow Lane, all of this positioned against the high-stakes world of spy games, this planned neighborhood functions as a different thing to different characters. To Philip and Elizabeth, it's a cover. 
But to deep cover veteran FBI agent Stan Beeman, it's a foreign nuisance, one that makes him restless. It's a place he sees as a continued battlefield in the war on American life, and these mixed-up associations are resulting in some of the most dramatically ironic, tense conversations since Breaking Bad's Hank and Walter. On the surface, Dan and Philip share a chummy interaction, but deep down there's a psychological chess match happening, which neither wants to acknowledge. I know the numbers dropped off significantly this week, but I am loving this show and hope it continues because it is just about as good as another great FX show was in its first season, and that's Justified. Another great episode, and I just hope others continue to watch this great series. All right, now it's time to move into our Thursday night with Andy and Wu's discussion on Glee. So take it away, guys. Episode Diva. Finn challenges the Glee Club to find their inner powerhouses for Diva Week. Meanwhile, in New York, Kurt can no longer take Rachel's arrogant attitude and and calls her out, causing tension between the two friends. Also, Emma's in a whirlwind preparing for the upcoming wedding. I have to say, first of all, I really, li- I really liked this week's th- theme of of being a diva, and the music choice this week was the, probably the best music choice they've had all season. Because one of the things that the critics on the forums and on various websites that I've noticed have criticized Glee for losing a lot of, you know, great song choice. This week brought a lot of great songs, a lot of great musical performances, and one of the things that I I really liked was both storylines. New York and Ohio had the same storyline, and that really made the episode flow really well. What did you think, Andy? Because I know you had a few gripes. Yeah, I had a few cracks, but it seems like I'm having it almost in every episode now, because the return has screwed up so many things for some of our characters but that's the moving on like i agree this episode and if there's one thing that glee does well in themes it's diva and it, this episode brought out some great divas but at the same time they brought up some nasty nasty divas i agree with you the songs like i I think that ever since breakup that this episode has been the one that has had the most great songs because usually it's been like one or two songs in in every episode that, that i have loved but while the other song has been like meh don't really care well, about story, them. Well, storyline-wise, the, it was, the episodes it was have been great, but the song choices have been kind of three out of five. First of all, the Blaine and Tina storyline. You have not been a fan of Tina. I have <sighs> not been a fan of Tina. I know. And when I was watching their storyline, I was thinking this. Am I watching Smallville? Is, <laughs> is Tina become Chloe? And is Blaine become Clark? Is, do I need to rewind something here? Did they miss save me? What, what's going on is like you said i have not been a fan of tina's story arc for the past couple of episodes and this you know adding from you know her previous episode where she has been annoying and just you know generally just in a bad attitude this just made it wor- has just made it worse for, for this character and well done finn and emma you by doing th- this diva oh, week oh, you oh, brought oh. out the wor- worst monster out of tina cohen shang and we'll get we'll get to that first of all about tina I have to be fair, even though I don't like the whole, like, thing of Dina and Blaine being kind of a pseudo-couple, and I I equate it to Brittany and Santana, I, I could see Blaine falling in love with Tina, not necessarily other women, but only falling in love with Tina like Brittany fell in love with Santana. But here's the thing with Tina. It's not very well written this way, but it is there. Tina's always had this thing where she's like the female Finn, where she needs, like, another guy to have a storyline. And she's always had that kind of bubbling under, 
underneath the surface ever since season one of feeling underappreciated and feel, having low self-esteem. It's not been executed the, the greatest, but I, re I really would. But at, at the end of the day, it's still there. That threat of insecurity has been there with Tina. It's always been there. Yes, but now they, they are just making it annoying, and I think that it's not working. But, uh, but I want to move on from... Tina, because I want to talk let's, about... Let, 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 let's move on to... Because it's actually pretty quick here. Let's move on to Santana coming back and her interactions with Brittany and Sam. I understand where Santana is coming from. Same She's here. lonely, and she wants to get back with Brittany to, like, you know, stop her loneliness, which I think we all can, like, you know, understand. But when she went after... Br not so much Brittany, but Sam. And this was the, the instance where I was looking for the CW logo on my HDTV. Also, apparently, Santana is playing Clark. Sam is playing Lex. And Brittany is playing Lana. You need to stay away from, from Brittany, Lex. I mean, Sam. That's, I mean, <laughs> that's, I mean, I'm sorry. That's the vibe I got from this episode. And I really, and I really liked that Brittany never really, like, attacked Santana. She was a little bit irked that she showed up out of nowhere without calling Brittany. That was a little awkward and I understand, but I, I liked how they ended everything, you know, good, just like when they broke up. The ending for Santana with her moving to New York, which is a good lead into our next topic, but uh, before that, I enjoyed that Santana had so many good songs in this episode. I've, a Girls on Fire was my favorite. She, Naya is amazing as Santana. I, I just need to say that. But moving yeah. on to New York, Kurt and Rachel, Diva of Round 2. I loved they started the episode off with Kurt's voiceover. Again, one of the reasons I liked this episode, not just because of the themes, it very much felt like season one and season two, where they would start the episode off with a voiceover, then leading into the main problem. You and I disagree on, about Rachel. Here's my yes, stance on here's my stance on Rachel. She ever since like season one, she's always dreamed of going to New York. She's always dreamed of becoming a big deal at an art school. All her dreams are coming true. And from a, from a continuity aspect, it was not out of place for Rachel to behave the way she's behaved. Plus, ever since Kurt got into Niata, they've all, the writers have distanced these two characters in terms of attitude, in terms of opinion, in terms of space. Like, she only wants to hang out with Brody. Like, she's all, all about Niata and Brody, not so much Kurt. And I love it, the scene in the kitchen where what I like to call the ice cream melting look that Leah has, you know, mastered. Because this, when I was watching the episode, I was thinking, wow, she really, that's right, she, he never told her that he, he screwed up on purpose three years ago. And the, the idea, and I love that when, when, um, Rachel, Rachel says to Kurt, and she actually voices this out loud, that her, her defeating Kurt really built up her confidence, confidence for the next three years. And that really has shaken Rachel. What was your thoughts on that? This whole story, and then we'll get into Midnight Madness because we need to touch on that too. I feel mostly like you said, I, and because we, uh, because of time, I think we, um, we should just cut to the Midnight Madness. I, I, the only briefing I will say is that they've been writing Rachel a little bit oddly these past couple of episodes, and it's, it's just. I, I have a different view on Rachel than Wu Fat had, but we agree on some point. But moving on to Midnight Madness, best name for a show of ever, and 
I like that song that they sang. The way they shot everything was fantastic. The way the lighting in that scene was fantastic. This was the oh, yeah. first instance, like this season, I think, that they've used Brody in a way not to just have him shirtless. Which I think when they hired him, I think that's the only thing he was really required to do other than perform <laughs> was to, to be without his shirt and his pants. Not, not denying it, ladies. If I can like a kitty and Marley... I'm not, or, and Santana, I'm not going to deny you, but my point is they really used him well, and I don't know why Miz is getting this much love, probably because of the movie, which you all need to see. If you have not seen Les Miz, please go see it, and if you have seen Les Miz on stage, have an open mind. The performers in that are awesome, but the song Bring Him Home that Kurt and Rachel both sing is probably their best performance this season. I lo- that's a great song in general, but the way they sang it, and this is something that we didn't even talk off microphone. Kurt defeated Rachel, yeah, but he won by only a minor margin. He didn't win by a big margin. He still won. Yeah, and I would agree with you more that Rachel is a little bit of a female dog, and was. Ch- I'm not denying that she that she has been, but really that's been part of her character she has been like an undercover or or in some instances not so undercover prima donna like this entire series but i think we're really we have we have one more thing to talk about by the way yeah yeah yeah, and actually two more things but if they didn't have that scene in the bedroom i would have been totally on your side more but since they kind of like made peace at the end of the and at the end of the episode when he won and you know, he tells her how much she means to him. That really redeemed the episode for me. But one thing we have to do, because we need to give this a little more more time, and the sound that you hear, if you hear a slapping noise, that is my palm going into my face after seeing what happened between Miss Pillsbury and one Finn Hudson. Andy, take it away. <sighs> okay, let's let's get oh, into it. This yeah. was not necessary. We don't need a storyline. We don't need that, this upcoming storyline for the next episodes at all. Not that it's not necessary. Not only is it not necessary, it makes no sense. Okay, they set it up earlier in the that uh, earlier in the episode with like Finn being mad that Rachel changed her Facebook <laughs> Facebook status to shacked up, which I thought was absolutely hilarious. Personally. A little bit, a little I, bit extreme, but okay. I I understand Finn's, you know, heartache. I do. But if you're gonna put him with somebody, put him with somebody that you know it's more realistic that he would be attracted to, like Marley, because Marley is like Rachel. Except in personality. Putting mm-hmm. up with Marley, not, not that I want to see them as a couple either, but this makes no sense. Like, it's all going to end badly, and ultimately, it's going to shatter the relationship between Will Schuster and Finn Hudson. And that's one of the relationships that have always, that has always been rock solid. That need to be rock solid since Finn doesn't have a father. Yes. Yeah, this was otherwise a really fun episode. Great songs and great performances. I would lot of, suggest a lot to all. great songs. I, you and I disagree. I think I think Darren Chris doing "Don't Stop Me Now" was the best song. You thought it was um, Santana at the end of, at the end of the episode, but again, um, I, I would suggest I, to everyone that you tune in for next week's episode. I do because that will be the last episode for a few weeks. And well, I make don't sure- as I or I don't as I like to call it. 
judging by the trailer. Well, that was the se- that was probably the second title, uh, the second title they had for the se- um, the second version of the episode. But uh, make sure to or, visit our or or, or 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 Quinn gets run over by a car again. <laughs> okay, we need to wrap this up. Um, make okay. make sure to visit our forums at acrosstheairways.com slash forums and go to our Glee section. And also make sure to visit keysidetv.com slash forums and go to Glee section there. This, this forum is run by our good friend, my dear boss, Craig Byrne. And if you visit that site, make sure to tell them that we sent you. Woo, this please. next episode is going to be big. Yes, overall, I give this last episode 5 out of 5. You give it a solid 4 out of 5, you told me, off microphone? Yeah. Yeah. Um, One more thing, I want to plug this. If you have any comments or questions for us, please visit our... Please go to our email address, acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com, acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com, and please put in the subject line, Glee section, and we will discuss your comments on our section for Glee. We'll take it over back to Nico and Dan. We'll see you guys next week for the episode, I Do, or in, in a lot of cases, maybe I don't. See you guys. All right, thanks, guys, for your discussion on Glee. So we're going to move into elementary now, the second episode of the week, entitled A Giant Gun Filled with Drugs. When Sherlock's ex-drug dealer, Rise, comes around for help, Watson is concerned about Sherlock's sobriety after Rise implies that Sherlock on drugs made a better detective. Not joking, I loved last night's episode. In fact, the two episodes this week were two of the best episodes of the series thus far. The cold open, a girl getting stuffed into a suitcase after refusing to let a stranger in to charge his cell phone, was genuinely creepy. I also thought it was wonderful that they were working on a case without the resources of either the NYPD or the FBI for a change. It was a smaller story, well, relatively, an international cartel is on average a little bit smaller than an international spy ring involving elite covert government agencies, and I thought it was hilarious to put Watson and Sherlock out of their element in the Hurricane Club. So really a lot of good stuff this week. But most impressive was the central conflict that was raised, that Sherlock's former drug dealer Reese insisted that when Sherlock was high, he was much more creative and brilliant than the sober version of him, which was a shadow of his former London-based self. I don't know if this was attempting to be a meta comment on the unflattering comparisons to the BBC Sherlock that first dogged this show, or if it will turn into Sherlock going way off the rails when he gets super stumped in the season finale should Irene Aller get involved and he actually starts using drugs again. The fact that my brain is excitedly trying to predict where the season is going to go instead of sitting back and moaning about how many opportunities have been lost feels quite refreshing for a change. And I think that this show is moving in the right direction. The smaller stories, a mere sprinkling of police, and well-earned emotional punches rested on solidly built story foundations this week. The sadness of Sherlock borrowing money from his father, the genuine rage from Sherlock when Reese tempted him with cocaine, these were all great story points this week. So to sum things up, was it a perfect episode? No. But the relationship between Sherlock and the police, mutually respectful but not partners, the plausibility of the crime, thank goodness for no more spy games, and the emotional connection to the person bringing the story for once were welcome and encouraging for the future of this show. Great two episodes in a row this week. Really strong week for Elementary. So with this much better week of elementary, I think we're going to wrap up our discussion this week, moving into the voicemail section. 
In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu about this week's How I Met Your Mother episode. Wu has mentioned many of the same things I enjoyed about the episode and does so while waiting for a burger while out to eat. Now that's dedication to the podcast. Yes. Hey guys, I'm doing this kind of in a weird way. I'm sitting at a, in a restaurant right now waiting for my burger, wanting to give my thoughts on this week's episode of How I Met Your Mother entitled P.S. I Love You. First of all, I want to say happy birthday to Mr. Dan Schmidt. Happy birthday, Dan, one of the co-creators of Across the Airways. Happy birthday. I need to take this up into three sections. First of all, I love the old school classic How Much of the feel of this episode. I really enjoyed Ted having an obsession with a girl and having, having that girl be obsessed with him. I love the old schoolness of the group sitting in the apartment talking about Ted's relationship problem and ultimately discussing it within themselves, you know, they discover more about their own relationships. I have to say, this is a great setup with the beginning of the end of the series, the Ted and this author girl. And come on, we've all been obsessive about relationships. I have to say, I loved the Robin Sparkles thing. I, I loved, I loved the, the creator of Robin Sparkles. And really, this would be probably the last time we ever see Robin Sparkles, just because Dana and I talked about this on Twitter. Kobe Smolders is getting over this and also play Wild and Sparkles. But I still find it funny that I can understand why other people, like, think it's a little bit overdone. Love the return of James Vanderbeek. Loved all the Canadian actors and performers. They did pretty much very much music version of Behind the Music. Loved Kobe Smolders. Best Fiona Apple impersonation with the song. I love the song. And I loved to wrap this up because I know the commission's going to come the off soon. I loved the um, reveal of how much I really, really miss. That's been like an ongoing story since season one. So to see Lily actually knock on every door move until she finds Marshall, I thought that was really sweet. This is probably my favorite episode of the season, probably because Carly Bates and Craig Thomas wrote it. I love, again, the old schoolness. I love Ted Cook. I'm sure the personality being highlighted again. It's been a while since we've seen that on the series. And I love everybody's involvement. I love Barney and Robin. I love Marshall and Lily. And I like how an episode could be spared by Ted's romantic obsessions like it was back in season one and season two. Well, guys, talk to you later. Back to Dan and Nico. Bye-bye. Thanks, Wu, again for your great comments. We look forward to hearing from you again next week and some of our other listeners as well in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. Hope to hear from some of you soon. And with that, it's about time to move into the closing. Yes, it is. Nico, do you want to share with everybody what we've got coming down the pipe on next week's episode? Got a pretty jam-packed schedule. Yeah, on next week's episode, we'll have reviews of our favorites, Once Upon a Time, Castle, Modern Family, Supernatural, Community, Big Bang Theory, and Person of Interest. We will also round things out with another Airwaves Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on How I Met Your Mother, Justified, Elementary, Everybody's Favorite, Arrow, The Following, and my new favorite, The Americans. And for the first time on the podcast, the mid-season return of The Walking Dead, and much more. But 
For even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. And also, for more Across the Airwaves content, you can check out our spinoff podcast, ATA Retro Reviews, which covers TV shows that were canceled or went out on their own terms. Or you can also check out Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which features podcast reviews on Young Justice, Green Lantern, the animated series, and all of the other imaginative content that DC Comics provides for its fans. Could also, you could check out ATA's Logboat Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which is a podcast hosted by our fellow co-hosts here at ATA, Michael J. Petty and Wu Keb. Could they cover episodes of the hit CW series Arrow? Get much more detail. Could also, if you'd like, you could contact us about any of your crackpot theories about any of the shows we cover. Or if you have any thoughts on how we can improve our podcast, you could share them with us too by contacting us at our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. Because there on our site, you could email us at acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Could also to stay updated on our podcast episode releases, got the news that Nico provides for our podcast every week. You can follow us on Facebook by clicking the like button on our website. You can also follow us on Twitter, got Across Airwaves. There's no the there, it's just Across Airwaves. Or join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like, and as Wu does every week along with Andy, you can leave us a voicemail. Got what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And if you leave us a voicemail, we will play your thoughts about any of the shows you discuss on air. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel, which features previews and promos for all kinds of upcoming Across the Airways events, including our upcoming DC Nation live show to celebrate the finale episodes of Young Justice and Green Lantern, the animated series. We also got previews and promos for upcoming TV show episodes and movies, including Iron Man 3, The Lone Ranger, Star Trek in the Darkness, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Man of Steel, and much more. And also, we have a playlist of all the DC Nation shorts, which air on Cartoon Network, that we review on our DC Nation podcast. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast, for all the ways you can contact us, you can download our podcast box app, which will let you contact our podcast and listen to our podcast episodes on your iPad and iPhone. And also, if you're on an Android device, you can download our Android app, available by clicking the link on the right-hand side of our website. So once again, for our ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babacht, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reichstuck. And until our next episode, we will catch you on the airways. See you guys. Have a great week. And I hope you all enjoyed the return of community. See ya. Greendale Babies will be right back. Forever! Jeffster lives, man! We now return to our regularly scheduled program.